0: Hi, everyone. So this is Wendy, the host of the Left Pocket Project podcast. Just wanted to check in and let you all know that I am alive and kicking. However, there's a lot going on uh, in personal, academic, professional life. Uh, And I've just been busy, really, really, really busy for the past few months and have not had a chance to post anything. So this particular episode is a re-up of our recording that we did many, many months ago of Discourse on Colonialism. It's the start of it, at least. We talk over, we talk about the intro and an interview that's done with Emma Césaire at the end of the version that we were reading. Posting this um, just to kind of get us rethinking about some of the issues that we discussed in the episode because I'm about to post the very long-awaited part two. We actually recorded part two back at the same time that we recorded part one, um, close in time at least. However, I hadn't had a chance to edit it. Um, you know, it's a two hour plus long episode and I just have not had any free time to sit down and really work through all of the stuff that I needed to in the, the. Ed- and, and I should say like, I'm not editing out a ton of stuff. Um, but I do listen to the episode, you know, I add show notes, things like that. So it does take work and, um, yeah, I just wanted to put it out there. So this is the first part of that again. First part of our discussion of Discourse on Colonialism by Emma Cesare. This is from around April or so. Um, and I'll post part two later on this week. But I hope you all enjoy it. if you haven't listened to it already. Get excited for a new year. Hopefully this year I can actually have some time to make more episodes. I don't want to make any promises though, because I feel like the second I make promises, that's when things start to fall apart on the podcast. So my sincerest apologies again for being a bit MIA. A lot is going on, uh, but I'm doing my best to stay afloat. Anyway, for those of you listening to this, please stay safe. Again, you know, it's important to recognize that COVID is not a seasonal virus, it rages all year round and it's further facilitated, it's spread at least, is further facilitated by people's actions that are not communally minded. So people who are not masking, people who are not masking, people who are not masking, it's mainly about masking. Um, So please, 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 if you are going indoors somewhere, put on a KF94, KN95, N95 or elastomeric mask, wear it the whole time, don't take it off. And if you're going to be outside and in close proximity with other people, please also wear a mask. You've got to protect each other. You've got to protect yourself. This virus is no joke. It's killing people left and right, and it's making a lot of other people have chronic illness and disability. So please, 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 please protect yourselves, protect others. Wear a mask indoors and in close proximity to others. I will be back soon with the newest episode, And uh, like I said, yeah, enjoy this one. Have a good one, y'all. Bye. Hi, everyone. I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color, one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project Podcast. Before we get started today, I just want to remind everyone to please check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash All of our information there is free and open to the public, easily accessible, et cetera. Um, but we just wanna make sure that you all know about it because there are definitely lots of resources over there, um, including the podcast itself, but additional readings and things like that. Um, and of course, if you're feeling generous, Feel free to leave us a dollar or more per month. That helps us keep things afloat on our end, um, in terms of paying for data storage and web storage and blah blah blah, um, and also paying our guests and for me to pay Richard. Um, so definitely feel free to donate to us. Um, we're I think the only, if not one of the very few podcasts that actually pays our guests um, a small, a small little thank you, um, and you know, just in in honor of their time and the research and work that they put into their interview, but also we give back to other podcasts um, that are doing work on the left and particularly podcasts that focus on leftism as it relates to people of color. Um, We also use our funds directly to support, uh, you know, like... The podcast itself, right? So, we're not making an income on this in the way that you would think. I know there are some podcasts out there that are raking in millions a month or whatever. Um, We're not doing that. And we specifically leave everything on our Patreon free because we recognize that what we're doing with our podcast is something that we want everyone to be able to access anytime and at all times. So, that being said, if you're feeling generous, as I said before, and you'd like to donate to us, feel free to do that on the Patreon. And even if you can't, afford to support us financially, it always helps if you can retweet, if you can tell a friend, um, if you listen uh, to the podcast, if you read up on things that we post on the websites uh, related to the project, etc. So definitely check us out, support us in whatever way that you can, um, and just know that you can find us all over the place by searching for Left POC, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C, wherever you get your podcasts or um, social media fix. Um, now, going forward into what we're going to be discussing in today's episode, Richard and I are going to have a Reading Revolution episode where we talk about M.S. Césaire's discourse on colonialism. This episode will be about the introduction and the interview at the end of the book uh, with M.S. Césaire himself, uh, reflecting on some of his work and his, his writings and uh, things like that. Uh, And sort of the state of anti-colonial struggle in the mid-1960s, mid to late 1960s. Um, And then also for the next episode, which will come out in about two weeks, we're going to be discussing the actual text itself, like the meat of the text, what M.S. Césaire wrote, uh, The Discourse on Colonialism. So just be on the lookout for that, but in the meantime, check out this introduction discussion and check out our discussion of his interview at the end of the text. Um, it's a really long podcast episode, just to give you just to give you a heads up. Uh, it might be something that you'll want to break into parts, uh, but certainly don't lose your place because, as I said, it's a very long episode this time around. But we really wanted to get to as many aspects as we could of this very, very, very rich text. Um, And uh, yeah, we hope you enjoy. So also make sure you check out the show notes and make sure, as I said, you check out the podcast and or the show notes where you'll find the PDF of the text and additional text that you may find quite helpful in terms of breaking down some of the subjects that we cover within the episode. So with that said, let's get on with the show. Hi, Richard. Today we are discussing discourse on colonialism, one of my personal faves and a fave of a lot of folks. Um, but before we get started, I just wanted to ask, how are you doing? And maybe a better way of phrasing it, as I've said before, is how can I help you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> what's happening in your life that may need support?
1: Oh Well, uh, uh, hello, and I'm um, happy to be here. And um, I guess in my neck of the woods, I'm uh, mostly just uh, trying to uh, get more active in like trying to be uh, more engaged in the community. And it's uh, daunting and intimidating and uh, all those types of things. And uh, I guess for me, what's helpful is just the uh, periodic reminder that what I, we are, all of us are doing is important and is Worth pursuing, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's a really optimistic way of putting it. Um, and I think it's imp- an important way of thinking about things, especially as, I don't know, society feels more and more atomized by the day, right? Like we're all in our own little bubbles and we have jobs and school and whatever else, and like just trying to survive and families. And sometimes it gets difficult to do community work if you feel kind of burdened by the other stuff. And so I appreciate that that's always on your mind. And like, I think something that you definitely bring to the table whenever we have these discussions. Um, and for anyone who may be confused as to why I framed the opening like that, it's from a previous, like a, an episode of a while back where I was like, things are so bad nowadays. It's really... I feel like I'm doing a bad thing by asking someone, how are they doing? Um, because that could lead to tears or like triggering someone <laughs> just because and that's like triggering is not funny, but I'm laughing because I was like, I've been there and I'm like often there um, where if someone asks me, how are you these days? It's like. If you don't want to see me cry, you may not want to ask me. that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so just recognizing that, like people are in different headspaces right now, no, always, but I think especially like during the pandemic and like with everything happening in terms of all these train derailments and people's lives being upended and just a lot of a lot of stuff going on in the world and in in the states right now. And I think um, you know I, I'm I'm trying to be more conscious as well of like how, how are you in and of itself can be a bit difficult to answer right now in a way with any sort of honesty, which goes against what we're often taught in the States. And especially in some States, um, where we're expected to just be fine all the time. Right. Um, and happy and like, uh, pleasant <laughs> instead of acknowledging that, you no, know, things are rough, uh, sometimes, and, and I'm dealing with that and going through that. And, um, you know, trying to meet people where they are and be supportive. Um, So speaking of support, today we're going to be talking about um, anti-colonial movements and a lot of things that inspired them. Um, as well as MS Cesaire's discourse on colonialism. And uh, for those who don't know, you know, M. Cesaire is a martinican or was a Martinican uh, politician, intellectual, anti-colonial activist, you name it, he did it. Um, inspired a lot of subsequent uh activists and writers that came along in the in, you know in his future. So people like France Fanon, who was also from Martinique. Um, so you have a lot of he, he's MS Césaire is kind of like the godfather of a lot of these um Afro-French Caribbean uh intellectual movements and and African ones too, because he was working quite quite closely um with with several black anti-colonial leaders as well from Africa. Um But we're going to talk, the way we're going to do this, the way we structure this, and we actually had a long talk yesterday about how to do this, um, is instead of getting to the actual manifesto itself, right, the discourse, uh, as he calls it, we're going to talk first about the intro. To this book, which was written by Robin D.G. Kelly, who many of you may know is himself um, a really prominent American, Black American intellectual um, and historian and, and you know just a philosopher. He's all over the place in terms of his skill set. It's very broad and vast, um, really amazing writer. And I would argue one who's very accessible to, which is one of the reasons why I've, I've really always really, like, really liked his work. Um, anyone can pick it up and understand it. Uh, but he says so much at the same time, um, and with great depth. And then we're also going to talk about the end of the book, which is an interview of uh, M.S. Is there from 1967. And then we're going to do a separate episode where we actually read and discuss, you know, segments from *Discourse on Colonialism*. So this is going to be a two-part series as we break this down. But like I said, starting with the intro, going to the interview at the end, um, and then in the second part. Uh, talking about um, the actual discourse on colonialism that M.A. Césaire himself wrote. So, Richard, um, why don't we get started with the intro, Uh, like I said, by Robin D.G. Kelly, Um, and I'll leave some things in the show notes. I I mean, I know I always say, please look at the show notes, right? But I mean that. (laughs) I really mean it, because the show notes are curated, y'all. Like, I, I try to really pick things that I think um, not only are relevant to what we're talking about in the moment. So like sometimes if I make a reference or someone makes a reference in a discussion that we're having, I try to link directly to an article or a book or even a tweet sometimes that relates to that so that you can follow along. But I also include things that are like, I don't want to say homework because homework has kind of a negative connotation, but, um, you know, supplemental readings, if you will, things that help further kind of illuminate aspects of what we're talking about or what the authors that we're discussing are talking about because I recognize that you know some of the references we make I'm learning for the first time you're learning for the first time the listeners are maybe hearing for the first time or they may have heard before but we haven't you know, discuss them in great depth. So a lot of the times, you know, the texts that I'm including give a little bit more information to fill in those gaps. Um, So that way there's never a moment where you feel like, oh, I don't really know what they're talking about. Or like, I want to, maybe, I want to learn more about that one thing that they're talking about. Um, And the show notes are one way, are one way to do that actually. So I highly suggest checking out the show notes. They're not just decoration. They're actually there to help um, kind of, I don't know, like I said, fill in, add some more meat to our discussion and things that we don't have time to get into obviously in like an hour or two hour podcast. Um, but that helps you better, have a better grasp of, of the material and also just like follow into some interesting or not follow, but fall into some interesting, uh, rabbit holes. All right. So sorry about that really long intro myself now into the intro of the book. Um, So the intro is called Poetics, A Poetics of Anti-Colonialism. It starts on page seven of the book version that we have. Um, And I should just add that this version of the book that we're reading is from 2001. It came out on January 1st, which I was talking about with Richard yesterday. I was like, oh, that's fitting because January 1st in the Western tradition is seen as like the start, the new beginnings, um, a day of of like mm, redemption in many ways for a lot of people. But then also it's important because it symbolizes the start of many an anti-colonial movement um one of which was the independence of haiti for example um but also it's the start um for many inaugurations in post-colonial states um and uh you know moments when new uh political movements were able to come into power um to be inaugurated and to put an end to the colonial regimes that they fought against so it's a very important date and i just kind of liked that they 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 published it then so it's published january 1st 2001 um it's available on amazon and wherever you get books um it has an image on the front and i i feel like a very neglectful uh reader because I've never really looked into the artwork on the front. I don't know what this piece is. um, And perhaps we can discuss it. But uh, for those of you who are looking at the book and the PDF, if you have it, that I featured on the Patreon page, you'll see that uh, the cover of the book has what looks almost like a a holy figure of a white woman with uh, kind of like a almost like a hijab or like a hood of sorts around her head. Um, This looks like garb maybe from the, you know, Renaissance period or Middle Ages even. Um, And the person standing in front of her is what appears to be a black young woman or girl um, who's adorned in gold jewelry, uh, has short hair and she's holding a flower pot or like a, it looks like a vase of some sort with, with flowers in it. Um, and it's almost as if she's like worshiping this figure, but she's looking at us. Um, and you, you kind of like your focus, it seems like it's supposed to be the white woman, but as an audience member, like a member of, who's looking on at this piece of art, you can't help but focus on the black young woman in the front and the foreground and, um, and the fact that she's like staring right at you and you can't her, her i mean how would i put this the expression that she has on her face is not necessarily one of grief but it's one of like you got to be kidding me right and and i mm. think that it reminds me of a lot of those pictures that you'll see that like kind of became memes where it'll be like a black child rolling their eyes at a white woman Doing something silly or being ridiculous or whatever. Um, and it's kind of like breaking the fourth wall of the video clip or the or the gif, right? So you'll see the child, but the white woman doesn't see the child's expression. Um, and so I don't know. What are your thoughts about just the art? Cause I did, I I like I said, I feel bad. I don't know the exact name of this art. And if I find it, I'll stick it in the show notes. And I apologize because, like I said, I'm sure people know uh i'm sure people know this art very well but i'm not an art history person so my apologies for not knowing um yeah but any thoughts on the artwork the the cover uh richard before we get into uh, the I, intro
1: i i would agree with uh what what you were saying it does have a very kind of like a madonna-esque uh uh-huh. look to it uh it's the I'm no art historian either. And so like, <laughs> <laughs>
0: all the art uh, historians right now are really mad at, at us, especially me. So I apologize, y'all. <laughs> I mean,
1: I, I did uh, uh, like look into it slightly. It's not uh, immediately like obvious what, what's going on. It's like many things uh, in this field. Google isn't exactly designed to help us extract that information out of whatever's out there in the world it's a really (laughs) and so like uh like knowing off the top of my head what's uh what that specifically actually is is uh not in my uh under my command but uh at the moment but what i do see is a lot of what you're describing and that the kind of uh, meme-ish breaking of the fourth wall and the, the just like like, just a look on the face and says, like, are you serious? (laughs) Or is it kind of almost, like, it almost looks like, you know, like, being posed, like, they're posed there for the photo or for the painting in a way that, like, when is, like, can we be done with this kind of thing? Uh I don't know. It has a lot, like, yeah, and it, I think it is reflective of, like, what uh, Amy Cesar is, uh, uh, like, saying in the the piece, generally, uh, about like the relationship between uh, the perception of white colonialism by uh, white coloni- or colonizers versus the realities of that colonialism for uh, the people that are colonized.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I definitely get that vibe too. And there's certainly, I mean, again, as you said, you're framing it as like the white woman in the image is as if she's Madonna-esque, right? She's this salvation or she's meant to be this I don't know, like redeemer for the black people or the black girl in the image, right? Um, and she's not having it. She's like, <laughs> she's just, as you said, like, can we be done with this already? Um, and like I said, it's not, it's, it's an interesting look because it's not one necessarily of suffering. It doesn't look like she's gonna cry. She just looks like she's tired, right? As you said, like exasperated, frustrated, um, annoyed. And I think that, that, yes, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. Like, like there's something off about their relationship because the white woman looks very much at peace. Right. Mm -hmm. She doesn't look unsettled. She doesn't look upset. She doesn't look frustrated. Um, And I'm not trying to I want to be clear that I'm not trying to, like, impart some sort of um, anger or frustration onto the black figure in the image totally because she's a black woman right like i'm not i'm not saying that there's like just to be clear you know because some people may may not understand fully where i'm going with this but if you see the image and you if you can visual if you can see it as we're talking about it um you know, that's, that's what's, that's what I get from the expression. Um, and I know some people have faces like that. Like I have a face mm-hmm. like that sometimes like I got, you know, the, the quote unquote resting bitch face, right. Which as an expression, I don't really love, but, um, cause it has all sorts of, uh, sexist, um, mm-hmm. implications for obvious reasons. Um, and like people have a right to be upset and also people's faces just look a certain way sometimes. Um, but I think that, that, she has that look of frustration, not not so much of herself being aggressive or an aggressor, but someone who's dealt with aggression, who's been aggressed, right? Like who's had her space violated or who's had her time wasted or her energy used in a way that's not to her liking. Um, she doesn't look happy in this picture. And she just, as you said, she looks like she's, she's done. <laughs> um, and, and it says, but it's as I said earlier, it's like the white woman doesn't know that. Right. She can't see that expression. She sees the back of her head. We see the expression, but the white woman does not. Um, she and, seems almost
1: oblivious as though that yes. the, the black woman could just not even be in the in the in the picture and right. be completely like not even affect her at all
0: (laughs) yes exactly and it's it's also yeah i mean that's a really good point um she's kind of looking off into the distance and it's as if they're two separate paintings which i also think is interesting about it like it's as if because even the style is different right like if you look at the Mm -hmm. white woman's face it's more like almost like angel-like like ethereal, kind of like fuzzy ish because it's like out of focus she's in the background it's it's a little bit of a softer type of lighting it seems you know like the way that it's painted and then the black young woman or child in the front is because she's in the foreground her features are more defined um and that also adds to. and then she's adorned with more jewelry and things like that so her figure is one that feels more realistic as well whereas the white figure feels like a fantasy right? Or something that's not actually mm-hmm. there, that's in the distance, that's, uh, that's, that's, fig- that's a figment of, of the, the viewer's imagination almost, right? Um, and I think that also relates very closely to what Cesar talks about in terms, and many of the other anti-colonial work that we've read, where there's one image that the colonizer has of himself or herself, or of the institution of colonialism, and there's another reality that the colonized themselves live in, right
1: um mm-hmm. and
0: so yeah go ahead it sounds like you're going to say something else too
1: yeah just to that point when you mentioned the jewelry it, it, it like clicked for me that it also kind of is reflect like it doesn't look like uh the young black woman or child is a like a slave or whatever that's not mm-hmm. adorned like a slave it looks like a, somebody of status and uh like of significance in such a degree that like again it reminds me of like going to the like not deep diving deeply into the text but referencing it that like uh that black people were uh, a civilization before white people came to civilize them like there was a significance and so like as the so uh, there was a significant uh, culture and civilization within africa or several multiples uh, within africa and that just because these people have been colonized doesn't mean that that the the substance the 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 substance of that civilization of those civilizations is com- uh, completely lost to the colonized like in that yeah. they can discover and remember that they aren't just savage brutes being civilized by uh you know benevolent uh, white saviors
0: mm-hmm. and that there's a place and an existence prior to to the colonization aspect in a way right. that, as you said, is not forgotten, right? It, it's relived in their own ways. It's it's sort of um, remembered and and put to practice in different ways, but not completely forgotten, as you said. And I think that points rather significantly as well to like some theories, or I guess I should say, points to debunking them, right? Because I, I even hear this to the present. It's a very old theory, but it's something that I hear a lot about, like Afro diasporic peoples, is that you know when they were when we were kidnapped and brought to the new world or brought to the Americas, like everything that we knew was forgotten and erased. And we we had to start from scratch. And I'm like, that's not true at all. Like, why do you assume that slaves have no memory? Right. Like, just it's because like, they're being kidnapped doesn't mean they have to get
1: their memories wiped. You know, colonizers definitely tried. Right. Like, yeah. And, and went to the most extreme measures possible, but right. they couldn't actually completely erase it.
0: Of course. And like this is this is a theory that was like it's called like tabula rasa theory or like blank slate theory, um, that a lot of uh, you know, like well-meaning uh white intellectuals predominantly were were talking about in the, you know, into well into the 60s and 70s. I mean, I've read some some Brazilian scholars who've said these things in the 70s, um, which is really late to me, but you know, you start to with time, you start to see more anti-colonial writing and writing from, you know, Afro-diasporic peoples, indigenous writers, et cetera, that are like, nah, we definitely remembered things. We definitely practiced things from, you know, our previous lives. And it's not as if time starts and ends with colonialism for us, right? Um, and it it introduces a new way of thinking about time and history too, because oftentimes the way we learn history, especially in the West is, With quote unquote contact, right? We learn about it from when the Europeans came to the Americas, when the Europeans went to Africa, when the Europeans went to Asia, and then through the frame of war. And for if you ask, however, the colonized peoples, right, even just saying colonized peoples, right, they're people prior to and beyond the act of being colonized. But just for the purposes of this discussion, right, like, when you talk to them, their history starts at a different place, right? Um, mm-hmm. You talk to indigenous people, even the names for the continents are different, even the names for what we call states now and regions of this country are different. Um, and so it it completely changes your frame for understanding the world. And it's something that I think is really important about like anti-colonial and post-colonial studies in that it does introduce these new ideas about how we think of the world and how we think in particular of how history is lived. And it, it reshapes time too, because we call it like periodization, right? So norm- if, if you have a, a start, quote unquote, of Western history or Amer- history in the Americas with 1492, what's happening before that? What's happening all around that? What's happening from the other perspective of 1492 and beyond, right? What is, and we never really get that unless you, you know, take a bunch of extra courses or you happen to be from those groups and you could talk to your elders and things like that. For the most part, the history that we're given, even as we quote unquote, try to decolonize that history is still deeply limited um, or not deeply limited, but it's just very limited in terms of the way it's framed. Um, So I like your interventions about this art and I think that the art piece in and of itself kind of does that it's like if you look at her they're just telling two different stories right their faces are telling two different stories and Amos is there is telling us for from his perspective the story of this little girl or woman young woman right that's the perspective we're getting when we read this book Um and so I think that's really it's a well-chosen art piece because <laughs> it mm-hmm. says exactly what I think the art or the the piece itself goes on to impart to the audience and the reader. Um, so now, my bad for that derailment entirely, but I don't know. I just think it's important because we don't often look at covers like that. Um, and I think in this case, the cover is like very fitting. Um, I've seen some covers of it that are just like a plain red background. So I think it's it's nice that they picked this one that kind of makes you think a little deeply. Uh, a little bit more about what's going on in the book. Um, all right, so let's start off with the intro. Like I said, on page seven, um, we get this laying out somewhat of what's happening um, in the world as as Cezaire is writing this text um, from Robin Kelly. And he mentions that it's written in the, ni- so he, he first publishes the book in 1950. Um, and at the time, colonialism throughout the world is still pretty popping, but we're looking at the end of World War II, right? So World War I has happened, World War II has happened, um, and countries in Europe are trying to recover economically and structurally and even governmentally, politically. Um, You have people asking all of these questions about the meaning of fascism and what it means to have had a war against it, whether or not that was successful. Um, But at the same time, you have all of these Territories around the world that are still under the very oppressive uh, reach of European colonizers, Um, and while there's there's definitely there are definitely rumblings throughout, and World War II helped spark a lot of those rumblings against colonialism. There are still many, 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 many territories, especially throughout Africa, that remain um, under the yoke of of colonial powers. So, what do you think about like that first that first section and and Um, Kelly's introduction of this kind of history as the backdrop for Césaire's writing.
1: One of the first things that jumped out at me was uh, just uh, that when he mentioned, uh, he called like refers to this as like a third world manifesto almost that hesitates. Uh, But then he goes on to say that like, the, the revolutionary cadences or quote the revolutionary ca- cadences capturing the spirit of its age just as Marx and Engels did 102 years earlier in their little manifesto and I just when in, in the little manifesto <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I could just hear Robin Kelly <laughs> it was like uh, it, it was very encapsulating in that like it's it sounds pejorative but it's not but it also slightly is in that like it, it's a recognition <laughs> of the limitations of Marxism about essentially the experience of African diasporic peoples and uh, oppressed peoples outside of the European purview or mm-hmm. like uh, the sphere, like their internal sphere. And so like I, that just jumped out at me at first and like, I couldn't help but like get a little smirk and just like <laughs> be thankful for Robin Kelly. <laughs> like, that's just, just great. And then like, but uh, to your points about like the, the contextualization of timing and I think it it speaks to something that I've been struggling with for probably years now, which is like re-understanding history. Because as you said, uh, the education that I got, uh, uh, K through 12, and then, you know, some limited college courses that related to history, it was uh, very much, as you said, kind of framed around European contact. the world as understood through european contact and that always felt off to me but i didn't exactly know why and in the discovering of revolutionary socialism and socialism generally i started to discover what was happening and like why i was feeling that way and why i felt like this this version of history was inadequate at least if not in like wholly inaccurate or misleading and so on and so forth and so i think that Uh, Kelly points out and rightly so that that is a very important aspect of this is the both the historical context uh, because of what it meant to the in the writing itself but then also what it meant for like the perception of what is transpiring in this time frame Mm -hmm. like and so part of I guess uh, let's see here that struggle for me has been like, understanding what of my, what I've learned about history is reasonably accurate facts that is relatively unbiased and what is completely biased and very far away from the, facts, the actual facts of the case and trying to navigate how to even determine which one of those things something is. And without a... a uh, without things like this discourse on colonialism and various other works that we've uh, studied and discussed here and elsewhere, I wouldn't have that kind of context for that story of like the world through European discovery that Africa was full of savages and didn't have any contributions to logic and art and reason and math and all those types of things. Like I, it's, I don't know, like dismembering or dismantling all of that is, is is a large task and having this other these other perspectives is like indispensable in doing that and uh I, this is slightly askew but uh, this is exactly the types of text that people like uh the florida governor are trying to prevent people from even children from even having access to mm-hmm. and so it's very like this idea of secluding this information because it represents a threat to the stability of capitalist fascism is uh, very real in my eyes, and like I can see it happening real time.
0: Yeah, so good thing that um, left POC exists, I guess. <laughs> hey, Florida kids, <laughs> give us a listen. <laughs> We're free. <laughs> yeah, um, and we got free PDFs of the books, so just hit us up. Um, but yeah, it, that's a really good point, and I think it's it's fitting that you know he's writing this. Um, sort of in the collectively understood end of fascism as they knew it, right? But what he's arguing is that like, nah, son, like fascism is still going on in the quote-unquote third world, right? We still have colonialism and we still are fighting against these powers that you all claimed are anti-fascist, but then you still are oppressing us, right? Um, And it's always important to remember too, and, and this is something that like gets lost on um and again, like European focused histories, but the Nazis, which are central to a lot of this text as well, are, are, you know, the, the I guess, what became of many of the colonizers from Germany who were going to Africa and torturing people, killing people, like engaging in medical experiments on people um, in their colonies there. And, and unfortunately that history has been buried for the large part i mean people who study african history and decolonization and stuff know about it but but the average person who's talking about world war ii and especially from the european or the american perspective doesn't talk about that sort of pre-world war ii pre-formation of the nazis history that germany had in its colonial forays right um and i and i you know i i think it's important as well that the way that that Cesare so sort of restructures the and reshapes the history to tell it is that history the history of fascism doesn't begin and end with the nazis right and that's something that we still need to keep in mind um especially as fascists themselves in this country will evoke the nazis as the bad guys and i'm like you guys are the same right um and in many ways even democrats are engaging in practices and and ideologies and supporting groups like the police who are engaged in fascist activities right and so we have to just be mindful of the 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 idea of like who is aiding this process, who is maintaining it, and who is continuing it well beyond the scope of just framing the Nazis as the bad guys. And, and I just want to be clear, like, duh, the Nazis are the bad guys. Right. But what people like Césaire are challenging is, you know, they're saying it goes beyond just that one group and it goes well into our everyday activities and our everyday politics where we're seeing fascism left and right, and that you all are not recognizing it as such because you only can understand evil as it is in the, 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 The shape of a Nazi, right? And not in the shape of a colonizer who's been engaging in these kinds of activities, if not worse, well beyond, you know, for for decades and decades, not just during this isolated, although very deadly period of World War II and the Holocaust. Um, And and he also, you know, like one other thing that I really appreciate about this intro is that um, Robin Kelly talks quite a bit about the ways that Um, other countries beyond Europe and beyond, or like, obviously Europe is not a country, but beyond European countries and beyond the United States, were thinking of themselves politically too, and how this is, this moment that Césaire is writing in, and the time that comes shortly after it, is one of of sort of, quote unquote, third world solidarity, rediscovery, and also a recognition of the need to be politically non-aligned, right? Um, To say, hey, we're not we're not picking sides here. We don't wanna be in stuck between these poles. And instead we'd rather go our own way when it comes to diplomacy. And I think it's an interesting time, as you said, to be reading this with regard to sort of, um, you know, like fascism and book banning and things like that that are taking place under DeSantis, but also thinking about the ways that once again, we're seeing, you know, countries outside of Europe, countries outside of the, the formal West, um, Doing their own thing politically, right? BRICS is coming back into shape uh, with Lula as president of Brazil again, um, and and Dilma, I believe, is going to be the representative, perhaps, on BRICS. Like um, you know, has her, she has her own really deep uh, economic histories and things like that, so she's well suited for that position. Um, but you know, we we're seeing some shaping up where countries in Latin America, countries well throughout Africa, are saying. We're kind of tired of working with the United States because it's not an equal partnership. We're being abused and manipulated by the United States, and we don't have any autonomy in this. We'd rather work with other international partners. We'd rather work horizontally with other countries in similar economic states as our own, and we'd rather work with countries like China, like um, back then it was the USSR, but now you know Russia, um, some other countries that that perhaps have been framed in the Western um mind as the enemy um and you know there there are certainly some legitimate claims to that but I would also say that for the developing world quote unquote or the third world quote unquote, this idea of the enemy is going to be different because the US has been their primary <laughs> enemy. Um, so in some ways the quote unquote enemy of the United States or the the people that are being targeted, the countries that are being targeted by the United States, for many other countries, are seen as partners. Um, and that part, those partnerships may not be exactly equal, of course, because they're working with different economic backgrounds and and value. Um, and I guess different, you know, different GDPs, different manufacturing and industrial strength, et cetera. But it's still it's still the idea of we have a right to choose with whom we are going to work. You cannot tell us what to do anymore. And so I think it's really interesting that we're seeing a lot of that as well. This These things that he's discussing as going on at the time that Cesare is writing and shortly after are starting to happen again. Um, and it raises questions about perhaps, and maybe hopeful ones about where the world is headed if we, if we go against the sort of traditional poles of uh, the U.S. versus the world.
1: Yeah, and I was just gonna add that like a lot of Westerners don't realize or fully appreciate just like how awful like u.s policy towards all these other countries actually is and is perceived by uh people on the ground that they've been so indoctrinated into the the propaganda about how all of these efforts are benevolent and uh while not perfect generally improve the quality of lives for all of these people so that when they are confronted with the reality that hey maybe a country like china looks more appealing to partner with than the united states they're like oh but china's so awful And it's like even if they were and i'm just setting that aside for now they haven't been remotely as awful to them <laughs> as the us has right. so it's like on that on that level alone it makes sense like then you add on then you can you know get into the deeper levels of analysis about what that means and the levels of relationship and so on and so forth but just from that very basic uh, assessment it's very easy to see how virtually anybody in the, any other country in the world could seem appealing a more appealing partner than the U.S. in, in many ways other than the U.S.'s uh, domination or hegemonic control over the uh, how we exist on this in this world uh, that is hopefully waning in, in this moment but uh yeah. i just w- wanted to also touch that like uh like he the kelly mentions that cesare uh demonstrates uh how uh colonialism works not just to like dehumanize the the people that are being colonized but it also de-civilizes the colonizer that in order to do these things to these people, you have to imbibe in this uh, fictional history. You have to believe in uh, these, like the erasure of Africa before colonialism. You have to uh, like engage and subsidize, participate, you know, vote for the people who apply these th- Like you have to engage in this thing. So like essentially colonialism turns colonizers uh, into Nazis one and all, like whether they're actively you know in uh, consciously uh, taking that approach or whether they're just kind of going along to get along that is in, in some ways and this is before godwin's law became a thing so and again we mentioned it's 1950 so this is right after the the, the defeat of the nazis or mm-hmm. you know the end of world war ii <laughs> to whatever degree those things are true uh, and so like this is a time where it's very relevant and very fair to be like hey wait a minute aren't these other things kind of like this thing like mm-hmm. and shouldn't we explore that a little bit more and figure out what it is that distinguishes them and uh, i think kelly agrees with cesaire uh, in that the the conclusion is essentially that it's like what made it wrong for nazis was because it was happening to the wrong type of people which was white people in europe like it wasn't any it wasn't any specific individual crime, like harm against any individual human being That was the the overall crime but it was that that these crimes were happening to the wrong people and Uh so like that i think uh is kind of at the root of uh the what kelly points out on top of page nine the cesare assertion that europe is indefensible
0: right and it's also like it's and just to clarify like i guess to add to what you're saying it's not that we're saying that like oh you know, it's fine if this happens to white people, but not colonized people or whatever, right? Like, and also obviously, yeah, I mean, I'm just clarifying because, you know, I can see people jumping on us for this. Um, Because what we're saying is not that we think that like, oh, the Holocaust was fine because it was happening to white people. and, And of course, understanding that Jewish people and people who were, um, tortured and killed during the Holocaust were not seen as white. They were not understood by the Nazis as the pure race. That's why they were in large part targeted beyond like just the economic stuff that we often talk about as well. Um, but they were targeted because they were otherized, right? Um, they were turned into these, these, um, objects that were seen as the enemy and they were not seen as acceptable they were not seen as European they were not seen as white um in that in the eyes of the Nazis whereas we as Americans will look and say okay that's a white person and I think that the perception for the world right is and and this and it's a world in which people are definitely discriminatory towards Roma they're definitely discriminatory discriminatory towards jewish people right so it's like the u.s is <laughs> it's always funny to me when the u.s tries to make it look like make itself look like the hero of the world war ii situation when in actuality like they rejected plenty of jewish refugees coming from europe trying to escape fascism um early on in the period and they also the u.s was an incredibly anti-semitic country right um and this is why in in so many ways you see collaboration between um you know Ashkenazi Jews coming who, who are like descendants of, or direct descendants of uh, Holocaust survivors and black people in the United States during the civil rights period. Right. So so these two groups are coming together precisely because they are oppressed groups um, and understood as such within the United States. So it's not like it was a cakewalk for Jewish people when they came here either. And, but the U S used world war II to, to sort of, um, revive its image or rehabilitate its image uh, to show itself as the defender of humanity and the protector of these otherized peoples, when in actuality, it was clearly, even within its own ranks, incredibly racist in the act of doing that. Um, and what Cesare is pointing out is the fact that, you know, and we get, we'll get further into this when we talk about the actual text, but this idea that, you know, it's appalling to the world and to many parts of Europe because they see a reflection of themselves and the prospect of they too could become the victims, right? Um, Mm -hmm. It's not these people who we don't care about and who we've been taught to think of as, as objects or as, you know, monsters or, or brutes, as you said earlier, right? But people that could be like, that are like us a little bit you know, or they're closer to us, or in some cases they were us, right? Like if you have a brother who's a communist and y'all aren't Jewish or, or Roma, but you, you know, you, you're you you're like, you may be Polish, just like a white Polish dude, uh, but you are, you're you going to get tortured too, right? Because you're a socialist. And so there, there are different degrees of it, but there's certainly an understanding that these are our brothers, these are our people, and we can't have them get hurt. But it's okay if these other people are hurt in the past, in the present, and in the future? Like, is that what we're gonna do? Right. And I think Cesare is at Cesare, and of course Kelly, speaking of Cesare, is talking about that. Um, the other thing I wanted to add really quickly before we go into I know something that you want to talk about about thingification, is that it's also fascinating how, you know, like in this process of decivilizing, quote unquote, the colonized person, right? The the othered group, there's also, as I as I sort of was hinting at earlier, like a robbing of this group of their political autonomy. And it's in a way that like, not only are these groups that are coming together to fight colonialism and to fight back against sort of capitalist overreach already, because like people like Cesare and many of his contemporaries were communists. um, They're also saying though, that not only do we have political autonomy, but we also just as nations have the right to be recognized as equals to, European states to the United States, um, and to be understood as 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 countries and people and leaders who have their own minds, their own ways of thinking of things, um, their own interests that need to be protected, and we cannot be just objectified and turned into. Um, you know spaces of extraction places for europe to take what it needs and desert and leave us or harm us further um and and i think that's what's so important too about like some of these some of these political and economic um alliances that are happening in the present right I- again that's where i'm seeing so many parallels um and i think it's it's useful to think about um why don't we transi- transition a little bit to uh, kelly's discussion Of Césaire's idea of thingification. I know you wanted to mention that and talk a little bit about that. Um, So can you open up that discussion and then add some thoughts as well?
1: Uh, I think uh, it's very much uh, in line with what we were discussing and that like part of this whole process is what Césaire calls thingification, uh, is essentially the the, uh, objectification of human beings, turning them into, like you said, uh, like centers or like fountains of profit rather than of as actual human beings. And it's only through this process that you can maintain any semblance of uh, order or justice or anything, even as as depraved as it is. uh, Because if you allow people to see the people that are you're abusing as people rather than things they inevitably it inevitably uh, can lead to the kinds of emotional reactions that people had to finding out what was happening from the holocaust like that like wait these people this is horrible and it's like if you allow the 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 people that you're committing these horrific crimes against to be seen as people then We, you end like you, it it opens it up to a lot more critique than if you view them as things to be uh, extracted as essentially beasts of burden, as basically in the biblical sense, as one of the like something for humans to rule over rather than uh, something uh, another appear another human Mm. being. And so, like, the his use of thingification also is like it critiques the kind of uh, colonial discourse in that uh, how we envision the relationship of colonization, uh, especially then and still to to today to a degree, but less so than it would, I can imagine it would have been in 1950 as being painted as a positive experience for the colonized or the people that are being colonized. And so like that, uh, this was one of the early, Kind of presentations of that idea, <laughs> like that this that what we kind. Of, I think it's more. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? People are more familiar with it now, uh, generally at least in leftist circles. But the the idea that colonization was a net positive for people on both sides of the equation was definitely a much more popular position then.
0: Yeah, and you and I talked about this yesterday um, briefly when we were talking about different things, but um, something that was so kind of like hair raising (laughs) about reading this, right? Um, Even in in reading the intro and like thinking about the ways that Kelly is is discussing this history and like what's happening at the time, it's also just scary to think about the fact that we're reliving this moment on that front too. And this idea of like colonial, like colonizer apologia that we see everywhere. Um, There's, you know, like um, what's his name? Oh my God. I'm, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name, but Macron, right. French president constantly. I feel like every time he opens his mouth, he has some nonsense defending uh, colonialism or French presence in the world and all of that. Biden does the same thing. Um, And not only are we seeing it in the political realm, but we're also even seeing it in the academic realm. Um, So like, Recently, there've been a lot of books popping up on Twitter that people have discussed and roundly criticized um, that are written by, you know, professors who have full-on PhDs, who are holding jobs at at universities, who are writing books in defense of colonialism. Um, And it's really disturbing stuff. And I I think that, you know, it goes right in line with, as we were discussed earlier, this this ever-emergent, growing, and I would say rather deeply embedded and firmly rooted fascism. It never went away. You know, I think, I think sometimes in my mind, if I'm being really optimistic, I like to think of it as like that was one period that was buried and then a new one emerged. But in many ways, it's just what and and I think Cesare would agree with this. It never stopped, right? It never had an endpoint. It just changed forms or changed locations. Um, or in some cases continued in the location where it had rooted itself. But in actuality, like there's no there's no differentiating um what's going on in versus now because a lot of this stuff just never never saw an end it just like took a it, it's, it's like it took a nap um it, it didn't it didn't just die right it took a nap yeah. it, it took it ate a snack and then it came back uh with the vengeance and and expanded in different ways um i also think just really quickly that you know, one thing that he, that the Kelly gets into quite a bit in this intro as well, is he talks about some of the intellectual collect connections that Césaire makes with other people who are having, you know, like similar, who have, who hold similar concerns about what's going on with European expansion into the world, or like could the continuation of that, and ways to fight back against it. Um, but, you know, you and I were talking about yesterday, like, the way that Cesare also talks about um i guess i'm sorry the way that he lays out his argument is very much uh reminiscent or i guess we should say that we built upon this this practice um it's kind of like a rant right it almost is is all over the place um not so much thematically, but in the way that it's written and structured, it's not something that you could point to and say, "Okay, like on this page he discusses this topic; on the next page he discusses that topic." It's very much like a man who's who's justifiably angry at what's happening and is just talking about it. Right? He's just laying it out, much like we would if we were to write a post on social media. It has like a, almost like a like a Twitter thread kind of quality to it, uh, which makes it fun to read in this moment. Right? Um, but you know, some of the people that definitely catch says hands are the communists. And I thought that was really fascinating too, because I know you and I have been there many a time where we're like frustrated and upset um, with the inability, it seems or reluctance of some people on the left, the Western left, most notably um, to recognize things like the impact of racism for black people and indigenous people and people who are struggling against colonial rule. And, um, and it's something, too, that I, I just wanted to say really quick, but then I'll shut up. But I just thinking of the timeline, right? Cesare's writing this in 1950, the Van Dung Conference and all the stuff that, that Kelly is talking about with regard to third world political movements and whatnot are happening in the middle 50s and towards the end of the 50s. And at the same time as when um, Albert Memmi writes Colonizer and the Colonized, which is was, I think he wrote that in like 1957 or 58, uh, 57, I think. And like, I really now want to go back and I, I guess I should suggest to people just like listen to our discussion of the colonizer and the colonized, because I really want to know, did Memi have any connection to Cesare? Did he also connect with him in some way or had he read this? I'm not sure. And I I think the answer might be no, um, but it's just kind of interesting that they're both uh, French colonial subjects, right? Because Memi is talking about North Africa's situation and um you know cesares talking about what's happening in the metropole in france and in martinique in the islands um but i don't know it's it's kind of fascinating for me to think because they're both critical of the failures of the left to do what it needs to do also um and mm. i think it's because they're just recognizing the simple fact that like you can't take the french out of the frenchman right <laughs> like you can you can say <laughs> all right like you're a communist you're doing this you like understand Marx's teachings and all of that but in practice you don't want to be inconvenienced and you don't want to have to really struggle and you're not really really my comrade like you're real close but you can't wrap your head around the colonial condition that your countrymen or you have helped uphold um and and you can't wrap your head around the racism as well and and I think Albert Memmi who is of he's jewish um he's white and jewish but you know he's he's uh growing up in north africa um, but his his statements are very comparable to some of the things that Césaire talks about with regard to being a colonial subject, fighting against colonial powers, and feeling like the left, Marxism, communism, etc. Socialism could be an outlet for that, very being very steadfast in leftism, but at the same time being rightfully critical of it when they have dropped the ball and not held up their end of the bargain. And so says, um, Kelly mentions some others at the same time of, of Césaire who are making similar statements, even though Césaire isn't necessarily in direct contact with those people. So it's, like, it's interesting that many of these anti-colonial thinkers, leftist thinkers, leftist colonized thinkers are having these kind of light bulb moments around the same time, even if they're not you know necessarily overlap they do an overlap and, and kelly talks about that we can talk about that a little bit more but sometimes there's like almost what feels like a collective unconscious happening um prior to their physically meeting one another
1: no absolutely and like understanding the history of uh, just generally and then specifically of revolutionary and socialist communist movements and stuff is uh very enlightening in like understanding how whether these are how and whether these ideas were developed independently or uh, were like as you mentioned sort of speaking to a collective unconscious uh, recognition of the circumstances and the 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 like direness of that situation and i i just couldn't help but also think like about when i'm reading these types of things like you mentioned uh, his, his uh, co- uh, excuse me you mentioned his uh, going after french communists in that like oh so like i feel a sense of relief and uh, you know the other positive feelings about the idea that these ideas have been presented and and well and like long ago like this this somebody i articulated this issue and presented in such a way that it can be at least built upon and expanded and understood better. And then uh, that's juxtaposed with like an intense sorrow and and frustration and fear and a bunch of negative emotions attached to the idea that, oh, people have been saying this for decades and we're still dealing with that. Like it's a very concerning and frustrating feeling that Mm -hmm. we've uh, had this information available to us potentially in some capacity for so long and yet there's such a stubborn uh, hold to to maintain it. and I think it speaks to another thing that you were talking about which is like the the French out of the Frenchman which speaks to what I would articulate or I would say is a, a an integration of colonialism into the identity of these people in such that even as a communist they can identify the the problems of colonization and so on and so forth but what they can't do is impede on how that fits into the things that they have come to appreciate and have come to become accustomed to having which mm-hmm. are the the spoils of ill-gotten gains
0: oh definitely i also i mean again i don't want to keep bringing up Memi, but it reminds me of like people who are discussing the last of us, the TV show, and they can't keep bringing up station 11, right. Cause there are many parallels and like connected uh, elements, but I think that they're just in general in anti-colonial writings, you're going to see a lot of similar threads just by virtue of the nature of the struggle. Um, and yeah, that's a big one. I mean, that's one that comes up often where they're talking about the colonizer or people who, you know, are descendants of the colonizers or whatever, and they cannot, they basically say you you can't move forward with us until you get rid of that. And i mean, uh Samora Michelle, who who's an independence leader in Mozambique and later becomes their first president under independent rule, you know, he says like, look, you if you're portuguese, you can stay, but you need to renounce all the bullshit that you were doing, right? You need to you need to be on our side and otherwise we can't work with you. You know, you you cannot you have to let go of the racist colonizer attitudes. If you want to continue to live amongst the people that you technically were oppressing, and even you can call yourself my comrade all you want, but there has to be some sacrifice in that process. And and some people just they want to like have their cake and eat it too, right? They want to benefit from the colonization, but then they want to act like they're our friends or they want to be you know down. Memmi also talks about this when he mentions the he ta- like the call. It's called the there's the chapter I believe is the colonizer who refuses where it's the colonizer who like listens to jazz music and who goes and hangs out with the, you know, the poor oppressed colonized people in the colony. And he like, he goes onto the other side of the tracks and, you know, he may even have a wife or girlfriend or, you know, friends who are of these colonized groups, but at the end of the day, he's not going to go too far beyond the comforts of his privilege uh, to challenge the system that allows for that separation to exist in the first place. Um, And I I just, I, you know, I I see that kind of similar language and commentary throughout so many writers. And, and as I said, although Cesare predates Memmi, they're on similar tracks. And that's why I wish like, Memmi is deceased now, I believe, but um, I mean, and I know he, he became like a big, pro-Israel guy, um, had kind of a change of heart, <laughs> like a, a 180 quite a bit, um, which is just really sad and disturbing. Um, but you know, one of the things that I'd love to ask him is like, did you read Cesare? Did you have, did you, were you reading other anti-colonial writers or was it just by nature of your experiences that you all thought these similar things? Um, but I, I, I want to talk really quickly about something else that comes up, um, in this, intro Um, and kind of uh, one thing that is also common in a lot of anti-colonial work is that Césaire himself had a rather illustrious uh, educational background right and he had you know what would be considered a very different lifestyle in comparison to many of the people he's writing about and defending as colonial subjects, right, in his work. Um, and, and it's something that you see, you know, in among Black American intellectuals too, where they may be from a different class group or, you know, like a very different class group sometimes than the people they're defending. And it it makes you wonder, you know, what's missed in that process, right? What are they not connecting on? What is the disconnect? And what are the ways that they too are oppressive um, and not necessarily recognizing that in their relationship with the people whom they're defending? Um, And so it made me kind of think though that, uh, uh, like one thing I, I witness all the time in the archive and just in like general history is that you see these people who are so close, they're so close to power, you know, they, they go to Europe, they live amongst Europeans and they go to these European schools and they have European friends and, you know, they may marry European women. And then they come back to Africa or the Caribbean or Latin America and they start shit. Right. And they, they start anti-colonial movements and it makes you wonder, you know, like, is it, is it that the proximity disgusted them, right? In some cases it's it's disgust, but in some cases it also feels like um not so much admiration, but envy, right? It's like a like a like a wanting of that same power or that same privilege. And there's because they're so close to it and they can't achieve it under the current circumstances, they go and they rebel and they fight for it in order to kind of expand that power or like punch a hole in that power so it can leak out to them and it raises a lot of questions about like you know the is what is it that compels these people to fight back is it that they're they're so close to the oppressor and they're being oppressed rather directly or is there also an element of like you know, we could be like you guys and we're not like you guys. And because of like one, one minor thing, like where I was born or the color of my skin, if I could just change this one element, then I can have power too. Right. Um, But it's, 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 it's always almost, I mean, obviously there, there are anti-colonial movements from below as well, but it's just kind of interesting to think about the leadership is, is made up quite often of people who themselves were actually very, very privileged and they were very close to you know they had approx they had a sort of a certain proximity to power that they weren't allowed to access um in the direct way that perhaps their white or european peers could um so yeah i don't know just something to think about cuz you see that with like fanon cesaire many of the african anti colonial leaders even some of the few that are mentioned in this this intro um you know it makes you it it, it makes you have some questions about uh what kind of what is it that pushes them to fight back in the end despite being so close to that kind of power and is it that closeness that makes them more compelled to fight it you know
1: hmm. that was interesting and like, like built on that uh both cesar is and uh like many uh, uh the people that you're describing uh, are intellectually generally intellectually gifted or you know like they were often like pulled out or selected out from a larger population to be like incorporated into whatever the colonizing uh, system was in that, mm-hmm. like they were educated through that system and and like they were, uh, they stood out as exemplary with even within that or like within that system. And so like, there's a sort of like, like they're supposed to come over and be the mouthpieces for colonialism in their, uh, respective places and if not specifically there then just generally as, sen- as essentially an example of what uh colonized the people that have been colonized should aspire to essentially the the frenchification of of uh, black people in case of uh Cesare. and like the part of that i think is like so so what that incurs or you know is like you have an intelligent capable person who's you know not just indoctrinated into the the types of things but also like has a lived experience that is like somewhat separated from what they've been learning in this educational facility or in these educational settings and they have so they have developed a a slightly different understanding and so when they're confronted with hey you know this is why colonialism is so great and you should bring it back to wherever you know and like you should be an advocate for what we're doing because we're trying to help like and do all that I, i can imagine that would elicit quite the you know internal co- conflict and like i'm sure that many people like people were presented with that throughout this time period and people handled it in a lot of different ways but one of the things that like revolutionary or socialist communists versus the people that didn't follow those routes uh, i think one of the things that might have separated them was uh, i guess like uh I don't it's hard for me to say, but I I do think that there must have been something in there and whether it's, you know, like you said, uh, their specific, like, how their interactions personally went in that new setting, and, you know, some people were put into groups where the, they felt like they fit in in such a way and that they could, like, ignore some of the things that was too much for the people that then went back and fought against colonialism to bear, like, they just couldn't bear the idea that they were gonna be complicit or participatory in such a system. And, and that that made much more radical actions seem more reasonable to them than might have when they first left wherever they came from and entered into the European scenes.
0: Right, and there's also like, there's and after this, I think we can move forward because um, I don't wanna delve too deep into his personal history. Whoever's reading this can read it. It's interesting, but you know, I don't want to spend um, I know we have a lot more to cover <laughs> than, than I don't want to spend too much time on it. But I, one last thing I'll say about it is that, you know, there's a section where he talks about, um, I wanna say it it's in one of the, it's like on page four, like 15 or 16 or so. Um and I might be messing that up. Maybe, yeah, we haven't gotten that far, but like it's between like eleven and 15. Uh, he talks a bit about the, you know, the changing of the guard somewhat in France where things become more reactionary and they've always been reactionary, but then they become, you know, they come under the Vichy government in the 1930s, I believe. And how there are like French um, sailors who are coming to Martinique who are like racist and mistreating the people, um, including people of like Césaire's class. And it's just kind of interesting. And it's just kind of fascinating to think about, like, how that, too, is a catalyst of sorts. You know, if you think about his relative class standing and sort of status, regardless of class, but his status as someone who's educated and who's been abroad and whatnot, like how does that then shape his relationship to these people who are like probably lower class getting off a boat? You know, French guys, they're white, but their whiteness almost serves as a surrogate for their class status and allows them to, um, you know, be be harmful towards these people that they see as othered, as things, um, as, as lower than them, just by virtue of being colonized. And so like, it's just kind of interesting to think about how those dynamics too can kind of like serve as an impetus for rebellion because it's like, okay, you, you were treating me for a second. Like I was one of y'all and like, we're good. And, you know, I may not be exactly equal to you, but I've had a taste of what it's like to be closer to that proximity to power, closer to power, closer, like in a position of power even. And then when I come back to my home country, I'm oppressed once more on the basis of being from that country and including being oppressed by people who are lower status than me, right? They're from a different country but they're technically on a lower class, lower um, social status than I am. And they're still oppressing me. We've gotta do something about this, (laughs) you know? So there's there's that, there are lots of questions I have about in general this is like a larger theme, but like, what is it that always kicks off these anti-colonial movements by people who otherwise have rather immense power in their own home countries, um, but they don't have as much power relative to the French or foreign oppressors uh, that are, that are colonizing them. Um, I want to move up a little or not up, but like further into this um, intro and let's talk a little bit about surrealism. Um, I know you did a lot of deep dives on this, so I'll let you take over here, but there's there's a, a lot of discussions about how surrealism may have influences there and his like dabbling in this particular art form, but in like the literary and political sense. And I'm curious to know like what you thought of that. And um, then we can go from there and like kind of go further into what he's doing in on the political front
1: yeah so I guess first off, uh, I'll say that like uh, well, so in reading the intro and uh, or particularly the intro, I realized that there is a lot of references to surrealism, which uh, admittedly, uh prior to engaging with this text, I was not very familiar with the extent of it was basically i I knew it meant stuff that looked or sounded weird, basically, but I didn't understand <laughs> the, like, re- what like why it sounded weird or what was going on there, like what like so like, Right. I had it was it was a bit of a crash course for me, and so like I don't know how familiar various listeners are of uh, with surrealism and conceptually and what that means. So, I guess, uh, and when I started when I first looked at like the Wikipedia and things like that, it wasn't exactly helpful to me to understand. Like, so I, I just like I I sort of want to ask you what what surrealism was is or was to you like, uh, but like for me. Uh, the discovery of that and like the understanding the deepening of my understanding of it uh, was a bit complicated. So before I do that, perhaps you can kind of give like what is a more standardized or what you like, what might've been in your head, or if maybe you're in the same, you were in a similar Mm -hmm. place. I don't
0: know. No, I'm in a similar place. I was going to say like, I'm the last person you should ask about this. Um, (laughs) I took humanities classes in high school you know, I like took some art history stuff in high school and I have a general, very general idea. I always think about Dali and like the drippy painting. I call them drippy paintings. Mm. Um, But they're like, things are melting. They look like they're melting or like out of, out of focus or like strange um, like perspective in the paintings and things like that. um, And how they challenge what were otherwise seen as like rigid social norms as well. So a lot of the people who were surrealists were also engaged in like polyamory at the time um, and sort of quote unquote alternative lifestyles. Um, Many were queer um, and seen as other by virtue of that. Now, I'm not saying that Césaire himself identified in that way, but I'm saying in terms of like the movement, the art movement, right? In terms of um, the literature, it was kind of similar in that, not saying it was drippy, but it was often like fantastical in some ways or mixing fact and fiction, bending fact in ways that sort of made it seem unrealistic in strange ways uh that challenged politics. And I think that that's where you can kind of see the entry point for someone like Cesare. um especially because you know on the, and I'm gonna I'm gonna include a, a piece, from or a book by Brent Edwards that goes a little bit further into this idea and the different art movements and stuff at the time that may be helpful to folks but I I think one thing that that helps us better understand the connection between people like Cesaire and the idea of surrealism is just first off the artists who are involved in this in France are themselves in many cases communists anarchists socialists um, people with alternative political views so first off there's like the sort of overlap of the politics and the art movement itself, art and literature movement. But then second of all, I think there's an aspect of, how do I put this? Like there's almost an aspect of overturning such long held regimes, right? And people who have such, what seems like finite power, there's an aspect of overturning that, that seems like it's in an alternative reality right? Um, That doesn't seem real to some people. It doesn't seem like a tangible option for some people. And so I think that's where you get into kind of like the ways that surrealist art or surrealist literature becomes a kind of parallel um, to these mm, like very uh, material and factual activities that are going on on the ground that almost seem like they're not real, right? They're not the norm. Um, And I also think like, you know, Kelly talks about how surrealism is understood to be kind of like foreign or different to the non-European thinkers that engaged it. But in actuality, like they're finding all of these they're finding all of these like interesting aspects of these movements that they can apply to their own work. And so like, there's a section here where he talks about, um, how it's important that these people are doing things that are outside the box. They're thinking about what feels like the impossible and how that can be applied to uh, a movement, like an anti-colonial movement, which is fascinating because like, Caesar himself is a communist, right? And communists are very much, Marxist communists are very much rooted in the real, right? In the material. And so he's saying like, yeah, we can root ourselves in the material, the things that are physically present in front of us and that have a historical backing and all that. But we also have to have We have to take some chances and we have to do, we have to think outside the box. We have to think, we have to bend our minds of sorts, um, to, to look into the fantastical, to look into this excess and try to see where we fit there in ways that we can apply it to these movements that need to also be, um, you know, like beyond the box. So like, if you go on page, let me see, page 17, um, he says here, for example, In an interview with Jacqueline Lehner Césaire, he was even more enthusiastic about Breton's role. He says, Breton brought us boldness. He helped us take a strong stand. He cut short out the hesitation and research. I realized that the majority of the problems I encountered had already been resolved by Breton and the surrealism. I would say that my meeting with Breton was confirmation of what I had arrived at on my own. This saved us time. It let us go quicker, further. The encounter was extraordinary. Um, and so you see what I mean? Like he's he's saying that there are aspects of this, this art movement, um, this literature movement that pushed us that pushed people who were thinking in very rigid ways, even if they're thinking about something that like seems kind of far-fetched to overturn colonialism, right? It helped sort of light fires under their butts to think beyond what had been traditionally seen as, you know, we're going to go through this step, this step, this step, and then maybe we'll get some luck. We don't know, but you know what I mean? Um, Mm -hmm. It's a, it's an, it's like a, Yeah, it's like a a sort of literary soundtrack. So instead of thinking of it as music, it's like a literary soundtrack, a poetry, a literature, an art uh, that makes people think outside the box and that encourages them to be bold and to do things that are, um, like I said, I keep using the word fantastical, but it's not just, it's not really fantastical. It's just like extra, you know, like going beyond what is the norm and beyond the expectations. Um, Yeah. I don't know if that helps or not, but that's, that's how I read it and understood
1: it. Absolutely. That that was (laughs) phenomenal. Like I was, uh, like essentially I understand that now because I was able to get there through understanding it through other ways. But now what you said makes total sense. Is it also like, uh, because one of the aspects is surrealism uh, was, as you mentioned, it wasn't like, it, it's not communism, you know, like there were communist surrealists, but there were also surrealists that weren't communists. And so like uh, the surrealism in and of itself, I think you described excellently and particularly towards how it uh, applies towards uh, Cesare. And I would just add that like part of what I think surrealism was getting at, that fits in with cesare is is that essentially the world in many ways had thought that civilization society was basically figured out that they knew how things were supposed to be and it's just a matter of going through the steps and if we keep doing that that we're going to get to an ultimate destination that's the right place based off of our reasoning uh, that's limited within this framework and like surrealism was a way to reject that. And uh, in some ways it was just, you know, very, what would seem to be uh, like small or petty or whatever in that, like, you know, just rejecting certain artistic norms or certain specific like expectations that people had when they were encountering a poem or a piece of uh, visual art or whatever. And just by just dismissing them and starting from somewhere else, they were uh, rejecting this idea that, everything was essentially figured out and that we just had to just go through this, these kind of pre-enumerated steps in order to achieve the, the peak of civilization that it could reach. And I think that's a very important aspect in, for, for all the reasons that you mentioned that like helped people like Cesare and others like capture this, like capture this idea that the way that things are and, or the way that it is is not the way that it has to be and that when we think about how it could be we don't have to limit ourselves within these uh sort of limitations that politically are similar to things like you know like uh uh, your uh, syllables per line or something like it's something that we've set it up this way yes and it is the way it is yes to a degree or whatever you know but it's like it doesn't have to be that way and there can be other things that could be more desirable and more enjoyable or like and all those types of things and so surrealism really opened the floodgates for that to to leave just the imagination or fantasy and and bring it into reality and i think that's part of what surrealism captures is like it essentially the the larger framework of it is trying to essentially capture things in a dream state and from your unconscious and bring them into the realm of what we can interact with. And that's exactly what anti-colonialism is attempting to do in, in that it's trying to uh, upend the existing norms and way of doing things in such a way that we can have a, uh, a presentation, a reality that is, as we see it, completely different and almost incomprehensible to the, if you're limited by those previous, like, limit or those previous kind of boundaries of, you know, you have to do political things this way and you have to do, you know, uh, raise uh, consciousness this way or whatever, you know, like, like by breaking those norms, it opened up uh, floodgates for lots of people to put forth some of the ideas that we cherish now.
0: Yeah. And it almost, it also goes back to, you know, when you started talking about Colonialism as well as like, or I guess I should say anti-colonialism as part of this process. Like it makes me think about what we were talking about earlier regarding the way we think about history and how much of a mind-bending experience it is when you start learning about history from the other side, right? Um, and when you it re- it it bends time, it changes time, it changes our understanding of start and end and middle. It changes. Lead, it changes our understanding of what leadership means and who is in charge and who's knowledgeable and so in many ways undoing the colonial practice of knowledge is also a surrealist endeavor you know what I mean like it's mm-hmm. it's entirely bending what we understand as as normative um, and I think that's also what what's also interesting is like I think for him and and fellow like Martinican surrealists that that Robin Kelly mentions, you know, like it, it seems like this space is one where they're allowed to think in that with their imaginations, they're allowed to be creative. They're allowed to see, uh, to to undo some of these limitations that have been placed on their politics from the political realm, because, you know, again, like I said earlier, uh, nothing against, you know, communists, like I think the of all podcasts we're not an anti-communist podcast on the contrary um i think we're almost like com communophilic um (laughs) so we like (laughs) communism um but i think what's happening is you know at the time and especially in dealing with like he says you got to remember that like cesare is dealing with the communists from the the metropole, right? Like the communists from the colonizing country. And those are the ones that he's so frustrated with because they're the ones who are telling him, this is not the time. This is not the place. Let's wait. Let's do it this way. Let's do it that way. And I think the surrealists that he and his wife, for example, are friends with are saying, you know, like, maybe let's take a chance. Maybe let's think outside the box. Maybe let's do something that's different. Maybe let's understand like the idea of ourselves as as just in essence, a challenge to imperialism, like the fact that we're still here, the fact that we we have our positions in this world um as as oppressed peoples, and yet we're still doing things, we're still thriving. We're so you know, like there are certain aspects of it that that I think, and in particular about the, the Afro-surrealism angle, right? Which um we don't really have time to talk about here, but it's certainly one that that adds another angle to it, right? Because it's like you have these people who are fighting against. All the odds and still managing to survive. And if that's not like superhero mind bendy stuff, you know, I don't know what is. I I think it just immediately, just in essence, pushes against these expectations and these conventional ideas of what humanity is in the European mind for the colonized. You know what I'm saying? They just don't see them. Mm -hmm. They see them in this very rigid box. And I think surrealism, in some ways, allows the the person who's trying to decolonize, to say to themselves, my existence is, is a challenge. My existence is not a problem. It's it's a challenge against the standards that are set by these cruel, barbaric and harmful, like hyper-capitalist systems and colonialism. And it's not something that I have to stay within, right? Like I can go against that. And I think surrealism, it's just like one avenue to get there yeah. it broadens me, the political imagination for them
1: Yeah, and for me to get to kind of like really comprehending how surrealism like did that for people i had to figure out how i related to it personally and for me uh and i guess forgive me for those who may be uh, judgmental about it but like i related it to the experiences of, of hallucinogens specifically psilocybin mushrooms like yeah that like it like it was a a non drug induced way to uh, uh achieve what uh, what some people in the psychedelic realm like are articulating or attempting to articulate which is like something that's in our, in our minds but it's buried underneath uh all of the kind of uh, rational like the all the rules and all those types of things that surrealism was uh, like in opposition or was revolting against it was it, it's in there but it, you can't access it it's hard to access unless it's through like a dreamlike state meditation psychedelics and like at first i was like oh i'm just you know this this is just me being the kind of person that people probably think i am based on my work <laughs> and so like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm being ridiculous but then like i realized it's like oh it turns out that the surrealists went to mexico which has a long uh, history of uh, hallucinogenics uh, being incorporated into the culture as like, not as like a drug pastime type thing, but as part of like the cultural maturing and uh, like of becoming a complete human being within the culture. And so like, uh, they mentioned that essentially what they realized right away was like, oh, Mexico is, is more surreal than anything I can make. (laughs) Like the surrealism of Mexico is just so much more, so much more intense. It was uh, I think Dolly was the one who specifically said it but like it was a it was a sentiment that was felt among several of the surrealists that found uh, uh, safety in Mexico and like I think that that's not a coincidence I think that like part of the, the surrealist aspects of the Mexican culture and like and I, I think this was in the 40s this was before in 50s uh, that's like before psychedelics, hallucinogens had really entered most, most of the western world like as as something that people did like LSD comes decades later like and in like the 60s and 70s is per, particularly or a decade later but like the 60s and 70s are particularly where much, much of the western world is really first exposed to the, this concept and like I feel like surrealism was a way to access some of that before uh, that had happened and that's why when they go to Mexico they see that there's all sorts of these aspects there and like that's part of what is cesare is lamenting so much and uh like what he's when he says he's defending african cultures but like uh generally like what he's lamenting is the destruction of that culture of those things and to to force them to fit into colonialism and so like uh i think that surrealism also like and understanding that about surrealism helped me give an understanding in a a contextual basis for like how it is that like what it, what what the tragedy is in like, all of this and that like something that could free the mind of like something that was so like powerful for cesare and and in the movement is something that has existed and could have been harvested and you know uh, what's it like progenerated uh, uh out of a culture that was instead destroyed for the sake of colonialism
0: When I look on on page 21, they kind of talk about that because Kelly mentions that for Césaire, he was really taken back by like the idea of how much of a fiction, the idea of the primitive colonial, like colonized person is, you know, and he he talks a lot um, in this intro about how Césaire really understood that colonized people um, prior to the colonized state right so in their pre-colonial state in these moments that are quote-unquote pre-contact which again is like a messed up framing that we have to work around um but just to kind of put a timeline on it for the average western person who's exposed to like western historical thought um this the idea prior to the europeans coming the indigenous peoples of africa and the americas and the caribbean were as he put it not just anti-capitalists like before capitalism, but anti-capitalists. Right, the way they lived their lives were communal, and the way they lived their lives were, you know, dependent upon others in a way that was integrative. It was, it was, you know, it involved bartering, it involved community, it involved the 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 group of people coming together to raise children and to to raise crops and to just live their lives this idea of being an individual fighting against another individual and your family have nothing to do and you like nothing to do with and your community have no having no meaning just just completely foreign to them um even if and, and like the way they understood and obviously like i'm not again not trying to romanticize Indigenous groups, and I'm not trying to reduce um, Indigenous thought or anything like that to like, hey, can't we all get along? Like, I'm not saying it was like all harmonious and perfect, um, yeah. because yeah. I think there's harm in doing that too. But there were aspects of those cultures, of, and you can point to like many of them, not just one, but for people who study this sort of stuff, where they study like, you know, older Indigenous group formation and things like that, and, and they really do. I mean, in every single case, even the ones that are, you know, portrayed as brutal, like if you think about the Aztecs, for example, who are often portrayed as as rather, uh, you know, cutthroat and violent and things like that. If you actually look into their history, though, a lot of that's a distortion of what they were doing, A, to aid, of course, colonial projects and violence towards these people. But also, uh, B, you know, it was a denial of their what were the communal aspects of these societies and the ways like if you think about it they you know the aztecs had like running water and 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 functional toilets and stuff they had full plumbing systems you don't do that by yourself right that requires communal thought that requires communal action communities coming together and so i think there's a degree of of that history that's missing if if we don't understand you know that the way that these societies were functioning was not along a capitalist model, or even what, I, what some would argue was a proto-capitalist model. It was just a completely different thing. And so I think people like Césaire, in embracing movements like surrealism, it allows them to really um, hearken on that past and understand avenues through which to to perhaps go back to it. And the idea of going back, right, is also mm. surrealist. It's like, you can't, been time right you can't get in a time machine so how are you going to recreate the past in the present when you have this oppressive force so just i think it's really just a a mode of finding one's political imagination which we're like severely lacking these days um so good on him for you know like finding a way to do that um and and yeah i just i think that that's a really um fascinating combination um yeah yeah go ahead i'm sorry I, I was
1: gonna say i think uh cesare also like it gets com- like in his personal interactions he's confronted with this kind of idea of like oh so you just want to go back and it's like it's it's more than just going back in that it's like it's that one that there is a back to go to like that that, that, mm-hmm. that actually exists is something that he has to like 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 uh you know repeat to people to get into their heads that it's like it's there was something to go back to and it's not just the barbarism or savagery that you imagine of uh pre-colonial these pre-colonial places like Uh and so like and within the context that you or the framing that you mentioned earlier you know the limitations of that but like Uh so like it's i guess one of the things that also stuck out to me uh about that particular part was uh in where he goes through the, what you're talking about on page uh, 25 says that uh, Kelly mentions that uh, basically that Cesare had uh, quote, practically given up on Europe and the old humanism and its claims of universality. And like, and I think that's also like part of what surrealism allows, but it's very hard like without that kind of framing or framework it makes it difficult for people to imagine like that maybe we have to give up on these things. Like maybe these things aren't worth salvaging. It was like, maybe it's not a matter of reforming these things until they are not so horrific that we can't even look at the consequences of our actions. Like maybe it's actually that we have to uproot that entirely and that losing that isn't as devastating or isn't devastating at all really but it certainly isn't as devastating as all the civilizations all the cultures that have been uprooted and systematically attempted to be destroyed by colonialism for the sake of colonialism because it required it in order to maintain itself and to to sustain itself
0: yeah he also has um like kind of building on that although it's a page before few pages before um uh, but on page 23 Uh, Kelly kind of breaks down César's construction. He says his construction of pre-colonial Africa. So like what I was talking about before, but related to what you were just talking about too, about like, again, kind of expanding beyond what the colonizer thinks, but also arguably for Kelly, you know, like beyond also what Césaire has as an idea of Africa um, and of like pre-colonial states or organization. So he says on page 23, Despite uh, Césaire's construction of pre-colonial Africa as an aggregation of warm communal societies, he never calls for a return. Unlike his old friend Senghor, so he's talking about Leopold Senghor here, um, Césaire's concept of negritude is future-oriented and modern. So again, this adds in the surrealist element, right? Like he's he's changing things. He's being innovative. He's thinking beyond the box. Um, his position in discourse on colonialism is unequivocal. Quote, for us, the problem is not to make a utopian or sterile attempt to repeat the past, but to go beyond. It is not a dead society that we want to revive. We leave that to those who go in for an exorcism or for exoticism, sorry. Um, It is a new society that we must create with the help of our brother slaves, a society rich with all the productive power of modern times, warm with all the fraternity of olden days, end quote. And then he says, um, this is Kelly's comment. He says, then comes the shocking next line, quote, for some examples showing that this is possible, we can look to the Soviet Union. And oh. now I know like oh my God. <laughs> and again, I think it's really <laughs> important to think about what we talked about earlier and the kind of historical framing that Kelly lays out in this intro, which is you have to remember that like a lot of people, especially black intellectuals at the time, saw the Soviet Union as a really like a, a place of possibility. I mean, a, a lot of a lot of what we've understood the USSR as in in our schooling right because you and I both grew up in the 80s and 90s a lot of the commentary we're getting in history class is going to be anti-communist right um and so the idea of the USSR as it kind of began to crumble and then as U.S. forces came in economically and kind of did further damage to the country once it was known as Russia um You know, our image of the USSR is completely different from what people were working with perhaps in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, early 50s, I would say, Um, especially Black Americans who were looking at this as a possible space for them to find a political home because they didn't see it in Western Europe. Uh, You know, that's where World War II had gone down, and then where they're, you know, seeing all sorts of fallout from the war and they, even black soldiers experience racism in these places, right? And then in the US, they definitely don't see it. Uh, but you start to see some people actually looking to and even immigrating to Russia because they understand it not only as a communist uh state, but a state that just fought back the Nazis, right? They they I mean USSR had a huge, huge role in W in almost a WW2, like I'm a two-year-old, but World War II, right? Um and 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 I think that there are aspects of it that that we miss as well with regard to like art and creativity, because once more, you know, I think that there in a lot of the anti-communist rhetoric that we would get in schools, it was this idea of like, Oh, you know, communism like flattens creativity and it makes everybody the same. And you can't do this. You can't do that. And, and that's not the image of the USSR that many black intellectuals had at the time. In fact, they saw it as a place where you could engage in these things. You could have free time because you weren't dealing with racial discrimination or being overworked because everybody had a fair, you know, like had a social safety net and had had uh they were starting the idea at least was that they were starting from the same place. Um so it's just kind of interesting to think about, you know, how 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 different of a time we're living in now. Um where the political imagination is a bit more limited. Um, but definitely the idea the specter, the symbol of the USSR was very different for people of his time.
1: Yeah, like, I mean, obviously, you know, the timing is one aspect and then also just like the, a lot of uh, the people that you were describing that looked towards the USSR for like, like you said, like a political home and like, because they didn't see one in the West in like Western Europe politics and so on and so forth like they did eventually end up to getting to critiques of the ussr and like what they right, found right. it was insufficient for and like on all those types of things it's not really like a very popular part of the discussion generally just because like people bring up like that it's, it's not usually a, a subject uh brought up in good faith by the people that are you know uh saying you like saying oh you know they supported the ussr that's why we can dismiss them they're not doing it, it, it out of good faith mm-hmm. they're like they're they're specifically trying to undermine whatever it is without actually engaging with the substance of the material that or the point that's being made they're trying to just undermine the, the source as being oh just another you know kremlin bot or whatever is basically how they uh, frame it and so like that's i don't want to dive into like all of like how we uh engage with uh, socialist projects that are outside of our where we live and like what like critiquing them and all that kind of stuff but like i just mean to say that it's not as if the these intellectuals and, and activists and such in there like looking towards the ussr didn't ever see anything wrong with it it's just like the the focus of of people that did that or the people that study them and then profess uh, and and support You know socialism of some variety today they're they aren't inclined to really get into that because like i said it's not entered in good faith and it's like and the only point is to say oh so this person that you uh think is has valuable intellectually also thought that uh, the ussr was bad or whatever like see you like you have to know is like and it's like well the reason why we don't talk about why the us the problems of the ussr isn't because the ussr didn't have any problems and we think it was a perfect utopia that's not the situation it's like that seems to to struggle to come across and did then and as it does now
0: exactly he also like not only is not only is he on he's not unrealistic about the ussr right he looks at it with sober eyes i guess you could say mm-hmm. um but what's also interesting though is that on the flip side of that he while well, he saw many things that were potentially redeeming about the ussr um and Kind of understood it as a new political space perhaps for people who were colonized uh, formally or engaging in decolonial practice he also understood that europe as a whole like western europe in particular was just he was just like put it in the trash <laughs> 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 um, and, and and kelly talks about that he introduces that idea a bit as well um, on hold on let me get the page page 24. He's just like, there's no redeeming Europe. I mean, he says there opens discourse on colonialism with this, right? Um, So he says here, quote, thus, given Cesare's role as a communist leader, we should not be surprised by discourses, discourse on colonialism, nods, nod to the Soviet Union, or even the final closing lines of the text in which he names proletariat revolution as our savior. What is jarring, however, is how incongruous these statements are in relation to the rest of the text. After demonstrating that Europe is a dying civilization on the verge of self-destruction, in which the chickens of colonial violence and tyranny have come home to roost, while the white working class looks on in silent complicity, he proposes proletarian revolution as the final solution. Yet throughout the book, he anticipates Fanon, implying that there is nothing, nothing worth saving in Europe, (laughs) that the European working class has too often joined forces with the European bourgeoisie in their support of racism, imperialism, and colonialism, and that the uprising of the the colonized might point the way forward. And so what's fascinating to me is that he doesn't see Africa, like pre colonial African societies, as worthy of trashing right he thinks we've got to move forward with those go beyond them but include those traditions in where we're going he doesn't see anything wrong you know in terms of at least not to the point of throwing in the trash for the ussr he looks to that as and communism as a whole as something that's worth um you know expanding our political imaginations but he sees europe as a decaying you know violent um backwards backwards kind of place um and and it's interesting because he's not the only one who does that right I know that uh Kelly makes a nod to Fanon but there are others who do as well um and and they basically say like there's nothing redeeming about Europe um and it says it's so much <laughs> no go ahead
1: I was going to say, it's extremely offensive to the sensibilities of Europeans. Yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, right. Understandably. Um, But what's interesting is that it said so much at this time, like I feel like there are so many writers who talk like this, um, that it raises some questions about like, um, is there, again, are they reading one another? is there something that is compelling these experiences in this sort of language rather directly about europe um and also makes me wonder like you know did as they're saying these things their countries are still embracing european goods um you know like and in some cases in the case of colonial countries being forced to rely on european goods so it's just kind of an interesting side note like how how are people reconciling those things um and you know, like I have a general idea, but especially considering so many of these islands could technically be self-sufficient, were they not? Like, were they allowed to do their own economic planning and not rely on colonialism? Um, but you know, it's just kind of interesting to think about, like, like how how Europe has done them so wrong that they just don't, they just are like deleted. <laughs> you know, like there's no point. <laughs> like, and then if can, you add, World like, War, I don't you do know, that if... too, even more.
1: It's like I don't know if that's like the 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 best or ideal pursuit or like perspective, but I certainly empathize the hell out. Of it. Like, yeah, I feel it. I feel it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but, and it's also like he's he's writing this again. Like he's his main thought, like this is coming out of the end of World War II, so it is kind of an opportunity to really just say delete it, like reset. Everything is destroyed, so yeah, instead of trying to save it, get rid of it as it is now. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's like a complete, I mean, we're, we're, it's not what we're, what we're dealing with, but um, imagine like, it, it, it kind of reminds me of like how m- many of us feel about the United States, right? The U.S. is very comparable to a lot of these dying at the time colonial states, right? They've got its, their fingers are in too many buckets or too many cookie jars or whatever. Their feet, their hands are on too many scales. You know, the extension of war is, astronomical I mean we have military bases all over the world and yet you have people here who are dying from hunger and then they're cutting Medicaid benefits and they're cutting all sorts of stuff. you know like these sorts of things are if you think about them if you put them in perspective how much we're spending on war and the military budget weapons versus how much we're spending on basic childhood vaccines or like you know like food for people I mean Insulin, yeah exactly like insulin and diabetes many other diabetes medications and things that people can't access basic supply chain issues i don't know resolving the covid crisis right we're looking at so many forms of decay we're looking at a growth and expansion of fascism as we already touched on we're looking at everyday forms of racism, sexism, limitations of people's reproductive rights. I mean, it just the list goes on and on and on and on. And so I think for him, he's looking at Europe in a similar way, right? He's just like, just, just get rid of We're done. Like it's done. Y'all don't have any more claims to power or any any respectability left in your, you know, there's no, there's no legitimate reason for you to justify holding on to these colonial states and and territories and like you guys don't have any money now you're reliant upon you know you're on your knees at the united states favor to get things rebuilt you're gonna own you're gonna have to pay them back a ton of loan money like you know it's just europe is on its knees and i think he's just like just knock it over And and so like we we are i i would argue Many of us feel similarly about the United States and are trying to look elsewhere for inspiration. If we were to think of a new America, United States, what would that look like? What would inspire us? I mean, I don't know. I don't personally have that much, but I don't know. Like, it's just a question to think about as we're reading this, you know, and going forward, like, okay, if we're going to delete Europe, which fine, no problem there what will, what are we, what are we going to rely on as colonized peoples to take its place? What will we imagine as a potential future governing body or state formation or whatever that's going to be not replicative of the same problems that Europe Europe has possessed for all this time, but also that it has um, like injected into the colonized populations too. They can't get around it. I just want to add one more thing and then I'll shut up about this, but I will never forget. I saw some video like in college. I don't remember what it was like a documentary or something. Um, and they talk about colonialism and they mentioned that, you know, they show some children in the Congo, like celebrating like they're so they're in not the Congo, but in, in the, at the time it was the Congo. I think it's still kind of, um, in the, in the video, it was still kind of under French rule. And they were talking about how the little kids were celebrating certain french holidays and i think they had like some sort of french independence celebration you know and like what does that mean to an African like a central african child to be celebrating french independence and wearing french clothes and whatever else you know what does that mean to one of them and how do you adjust to that as i guess from wherever you're from like how do how do you adjust to the idea that they don't even have their own holidays. They're celebrating holidays of a place that's cold. So they have all these, like, like if you, even, even if you think about Christmas, right. You think about the celebration of Christmas in the quote unquote, third world in these places where they don't get snow, they don't have Christmas trees, you know, like they don't have pine trees. Like it's, it's so foreign and so oppressive that like, And we'll, we'll talk about this as in relation to the um, interview at the end too. But It kills their, it like works to suppress and just snuff out those native identities, right? In a way that's so violent that even children don't, they're they're celebrating holidays that with these symbols that are unrecognizable to them, that they've never seen. Um, I don't know. I just thought there was something so harrowing about it. And so when when Cesare is talking about getting rid of Europe, He's talking about that too, right? He's talking about getting rid of these vestiges of colonialism in their everyday lives that stifle them and don't allow them to have anything beyond what's expected of them to be, you know, subservient, brutish, and and stupid, arguably. You know, like stupid in, in when I and I say that in in the ableist and traditionalist sense, right? that's how Europe is thinking of these people um and so yeah I don't know just it, it it makes me it just makes me think about like what what must have been going through his mind as he's writing these things and how could he formatte formulate solutions um with all of those challenges just on from like a psychological level too
1: yeah you know I I, I think that what you describe is a very important aspect and that it also, Ties in somewhat to where he goes, uh, or what Kelly is talking about on uh, pages twenty six and twenty seven, which is like the discourse on colonialism isn't meant to be like a prescription. It's like this is how the revolution, this is how to do the revolution. It, it's much more polemic, but uh, the it did have kind of a uh, I guess a predictive idea in that it said like he says some. Kelly says, quote, some might argue that the moment of truth has already passed, that Césaire and Fannin's predictions prove false, that it, it, we're facing an era where fools are calling for a renewal of colonialism, where depiction, or descriptions of violence and instability draw on the very colonial language of barbarism and backwardness that Césaire critiques in these pages, but f- this is all mystification. The fact is, while colonialism in its formal sense might have been dismantled, the colonial state has not many of the problems of democracy are products of the old colonial state, whose primary difference is the presence of black faces. And I think that's speaking to a lot of uh, the kind of frustrations and the the impediments that we've been discussing so far. And that like, uh, by uh, achieving some limited uh, amount of assimilation and or of assimilation they're able to kind of capture uh the imagination of the people and so that they're not really able to imagine something outside of this existing state of affairs and like the disruption of that has been was was critical and like we're facing basically the capitalist colonialist uh defense of their perspective when the the in the us we saw you know the assassinations and the suppression oppressions of uh various groups that were making these rises and we saw that around the world as well and so like they're trying to discover trying to uncover and uh, uh i guess engage with this idea that you know assimilation isn't the isn't the pathway to prosperity or to lead freedom to liberation to full human actualization that we're being told it is and like confronting that has is a lot of what is happening. happened like that a lot of people throughout the world in the African diaspora are coming to that confrontation as a mm-hmm. result of the circumstances in their individual countries
0: absolutely there's also I mean he's I mean what he's talking about here is neo-colonialism right um and you know he he calls it assimilation throughout just like the the word that you use too that's what he uses um i don't i don't think he actually uses the term neocolonialism but you know for those who may not know neocolonialism is like the colonial process but when it's basically the keys are given to the the people from the island or the people from that country or territory the people who look like them become the presses they're put in oppressive positions but the house is still owned by the Europeans, right? The original colonizers. So you may have given mm-hmm. the keys to the house to somebody, but the mortgage that you sign is, is, is gonna be printed out and given to you by the European countries. And the owners, the technical owners, the people who can go and bulldoze your house when they want to are the Europeans, right? You answer to them, but it helps break up the tension, right? Because now you're gonna be angry at someone who looks like you and you can't do much about that instead of targeting the, the actual, like, bad, I mean, they're all bad guys, but the real, real baddies who are the Europeans in this case, right? And I would say, like, you know, obviously the upper-class upper, upper class government ruling Europeans, although Césaire would certainly argue that uh, lower-class whites in Europe are its handmaidens, right? They certainly help the mm-hmm. process of oppressing uh, colonized peoples. Okay, so now we're going to flip down to the interview with Emma Césaire, which was conducted by René de Pestre. I don't know. I think it says it's for, yeah. So, okay. So this interview was for an anthology of César's writings published in Casa de las Americas for um, the, okay. So the... it's interesting. This is what I was, so earlier we were talking about before we started recording about how there's so much overlap between places like haiti cuba and jamaica right just historically and in terms of their like language and activism and all this stuff um and here in the intro of the interview he talks about how the person so the person interviewing cesare is haitian and he's interviewing him for the purposes of the cultural congress of havana in 67 so you see what i mean when i say when i was talking earlier about like there's so much overlap this is a good example of it right here um and it was um the the interview itself is like kind of so it's so just to clarify it's after the well after the book has been or the the discourse on colonialism was written this is this interview takes place in 1967, and the Discourse on Colonialism was written and or published, I should say, in 1950. Um, so the the interview starts off kind of, you know, generic, kind of asking a little bit about his background, and it talks, it focuses primarily on a book of um that that Césaire writes that's kind of like a a poem in the form of prose. Uh and, you know. I didn't have as much interest in that the way you know that part of the interview. Although certainly now I want to go and read the book, which is called "Return to My Native Land." I've never read it before, um, so I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I'll like you know if I have a chance, we should go back and look that up and see you know what we can do with that. If especially if there's a translation of it into English um, that we could share with others. But what's fascinating about thinking about that is that the the interviewer asks him. Asks there, you know, what he thinks of language, right? He talks a little bit about exactly what I'm talking about, right? In terms of like how how helpful or harmful in terms of your expression can French itself be? Um, and he says on page, this is on page 83, the way he talks about French and how he's kind of like decolonizing French and its use in places like Martinique and in his work is interesting. He says, "quote I don't deny French influences myself." or i don't di- i don't deny french influences myself whether i want to or not as a poet i express myself in french and clearly french literature has influenced me But I want to emphasize very strongly that while using as a point of departure, the elements that French literature gave me, at the same time, I've always striven to create a new language, one capable of communicating the African heritage. In other words, for me, French was a tool that I wanted to use in developing a new means of expression. I wanted to create an Antillean French, a Black French, that while still being French, had a Black character. And it kind of, I mean... This, he also talks a little bit about surrealism in this as well. And so I'll just add this because of what what we were discussing earlier. This is right after that. He says, The interviewer asks, has surrealism been instrumental in your effort to discover this new French language? And Césaire replies, I was ready to accept surrealism because I already had advanced on my own, using as as my starting points the same authors that had influenced the surrealist poets. Their thinking and mine had common reference points. Surrealism provided me with what I had been confusedly searching for. Um, I've accepted it joyfully because in it, I found none of the, or more of the confirmation than a revelation. It was a weapon that exploded the French language. It shook up absolutely everything. This is very important because the traditional forms, burdensome, overused forms were crushing me. And so I think it's really, really interesting the way he talks about language as if it were like a, a cage or like a, prison of some sort, you know, that he like explodes out of by exploring it through uh like by harnessing this black heritage, this African ancestry, his dabbling in surrealism. The way he combines those elements is really powerful and interesting here. Um, just as like a visual cue, right? But also on a like deeper ideological level, because it helps us start to talk about negritude, which is another movement that Cesare was deeply impacted by and also influential in um so basically negritude like this is real shorthand version <laughs> you know like it's like there are many 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 books written about this but in short negritude is a movement it literally means like blackness um because negre is black in french so this idea of like having understanding the african and black elements in particular of like one's everyday life, of one's history, one's art, one's political expression and centering that. And that's not to say that these people are not interested in class. On the contrary, many people who are involved in the negritude movement are themselves, you know, on the left, like really, really firmly. They're, you know, communist, anti-social, or sorry, uh, anti-colonialists and things like that, Um, socialists, et cetera. But what they're saying is that you have to understand, if you're going to talk about these things, you have to understand the way that Blackness is often at the center of our struggle and at the center at the same time of our cultural expression and our art and the things that we find beauty in and of our past, right? So it's just kind of understanding and centering the Blackness, especially. And I should say this it's like very important, actually, very relevant that it comes out of these present and past French colonies because France much like Portugal in a lot of ways does this thing where it's sort of, it it tries to paper over any aspects of race. Oh, we're all part of the French Republic. We're all French. I mean, they don't even technically keep French. Uh, they don't keep racial records on the census in France. Now, I don't know if that's changed, uh, but they weren't last time I checked and they haven't for decades, if not forever, perhaps. Um, and so, they're, they're, the fact that these people are coming out of the French colonies and they're saying, no, not only are we opposing your colonialism, but we are embracing who we are as black people and understanding that at the root of not only our struggle but our salvation of our of our expression, it matters. because um, it's 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 even more of a challenge um, in these sorts of societies that are that are dealing, you know, running up against uh, the kind of fake, uh color blindness of the french empire
1: yeah and i can see how like upon like interacting engaging with the stuff that they just don't want to be complicit in that and what it means to be french once they understand what it means to be colonial power and and what that portends for the people on the wrong side of that equation Mm -hmm. and also just like one of the things that like stuck out to me was the the line this was very important because the traditional forms burdensome overused forms were crushing these like i feel very much that uh there's a similarity or parallel there in like western the western political spectrum slash overton window especially in the united states it's more pronounced uh, than you know social democratic countries in europe but uh, that there's this very constraining uh idea of what like it is to be a political entity or to engage in politics and it's crushing uh, people that are um, on basically getting the short end of the uh, the short end of the stick on that deal. Like, and it's, it's just suffocating. And like, I think that that, and he mentions, you know, uh, that like the, the diaspora tradition like or the the african diaspora is like this is something that a lot of people are coming to the same realizations at the same time because it's just it is as just as a matter of fact it just is so like crushing and like limiting and just like it, it feels like this heavy burden that is not always easily articulated by the people that feel it but they feel it and so when somebody does articulate it, it's like that's what it is that <laughs> like,
0: right and he even says later on like on page 84 he touches on something that we were talking about earlier but like with regard to traditions and things that don't belong to you and this is another reason why like he's embracing um this alternative perspective and use of the french language but also kind of upending and challenging french culture by looking to blackness and and kind of inserting it into every aspect of his political, social, and artistic life. Um, He says here, for example, this for me was a call to Africa. I said to myself, it's true that superficially we are French. We bear the marks of French customs. We've been branded by Cartesian philosophy, by French rhetoric. But if we break with all that, if we plumb the depths, then what we will find is fundamentally Black. And then the interviewer asks, he says, in other words, it's a process of disalienation. And then he says, right, yes, like it's it's a process of disalienation. And like for those who study or who've understood, you know, read a little bit of Marx or whatever, this idea of alienation is for people like Césaire, not only a social question, but also a matter of like. Uh, or sorry it's it's a racial question that he's talking about here but he's coming from it from the perspective of being a communist too right so it's this it's he's he's talking about alienation from both the economic and like being a colonized person but also as a black person and he's saying in embracing my blackness in embracing and centering that in my analysis it allows me to be the opposite of alienated right it finally plugs me in to what I've been talking about this whole time and that didn't necessarily have a name. And that he goes on to argue that like, this is what was missing from communism. This is what was missing from French socialism. Like people were not understanding that they had to talk about blackness. They had to understand it in order to have a fuller and more robust analysis. And also I would argue, and I think he would argue as well, revolutionary spirit, right? Um, And he says too, like, the challenge with the surrealists in France or the communists in France is that, quote, the words of their poems were colorless, right? They were not trying to, um, you know, to, to push back on things. And he says, he then I'll, I'll be quiet, but he also says that there's later on, um, there's even a problem with sometimes you know, the Martinican or the Haitian students or activists or poets, because they had assimilated the word that he uses so deeply into French culture. Um, he uses the term bovalisme, I think, which I had never heard before, um, but it, or I think it's bovalisme. I may be mispronouncing it. Uh, no, my, yeah. Sure. Yep, yep. No, no, no. I couldn't remember if it was a V or an N. Yeah, it's bovalisme. So like basically this idea that like, you're just lowering yourself, to erase anything of your own culture and embrace fully the French culture. Basically what Fanon goes on to call, you know, black skin, white masks or whatever, right? Like this idea that you're black, everybody can see you're black, but you're putting on this facade of being fully assimilated. And and it ends up hurting you in the end because you're never gonna be accepted as one of them. you know. Um, Mm -hmm. So for him, that's why he's like, instead of trying that, why don't you embrace who you are, embrace and understand your blackness first, and everything else will make sense. Um, And and if you don't understand that, things like communism, things like surrealism, things like these other movements, fill in the blank, are not going to make sense. They're not going to make sense to your particular, he says, historical peculiarities, your particular situation. It's not going to be applicable if you don't really come to terms with that. So I don't know. I thought that was, that was like one of the really, key points for the interview for me that really resonated with me and that I think continues to be a problem for, you know, left movements and artistic movements and all of these things, if you're dealing with places that have Afro diasporic communities, you know, and like histories of slavery and colonialism, you can't deny that that happened and left a major imprint on the society and the way things function. Like I still, to this day, people talking about how racism didn't impact the americas is like saying the sky is red you know it just it doesn't make any <laughs> sense it doesn't make any sense
1: uh, i was just gonna say that when he talks about uh blackness uh, like i also get the distinct impression that he's not described he's not referring to it as like he means something kind of i don't know like uh more nuanced than what i think could easily be interpreted by mm. understanding blackness is like it's not the, the blackness that was essentially cast upon the African diasporic peoples by uh, white supremacy and colonialism and like that existence and what that means per se, like in, in, in certainly not in totality. Uh, while that is a component of blackness because it's uh, various kind of shared experiences of, of African diasporic peoples that are unique in their own circumstances, but have similar themes and such. Uh, that's a part of it but it's also there's a larger aspect to it that like there's a humanity in in blackness that has been deprived of europeans as a result of their colonial excavates like the, mm-hmm. the, they they that in in humanism and the european concept of humanism is like it's all about like and too often literally the man but like It's about the uh, establishment of humanity being the basis for which uh, you know you deserve kind of the the quality of life, the you know liberty, justice, freedom, those types of things is based off of the concept of being a human. More and like I said, more specifically at the time and in various places, that being a man. But like, uh, it's to connect blackness to that human factor is I think part of what he's describing that like in in our in our in the African sport people's blackness is also the human their humanity and so like by uncover unpacking like getting like uncover like I don't know what's the word I'm looking for like uh, unburying the blackness underneath that's buried underneath all of this assimilation stuff you can just dis- rediscover uh, part of what it means to be human uh, I don't know if that makes
0: any sense (laughs) no it does it you're saying like unearthing that right like it's been it's been suppressed and put down and covered up so with so many layers of dirt right and in this case the dirt is like the colonial attitudes and the assimilation and the pressures to fit a certain mold and standards of behavior and under like religion and traditions and customs and ways of thinking about the world like the list goes on and on and on but it's a heavy When he says blackness burden. he's speaking
1: to about more than like melanin exactly content like he doesn't right. really yeah sorry
0: right no no go ahead
1: yeah that's just that's just like kind of a, a small summary of what I'm trying to get at is essentially that it's blackness isn't Serving to that narrow kind of understanding that it's a much deeper. and hopefully I was able to articulate that in a way that makes sense to folks.
0: yeah. I mean, and and this is why I keep saying, like read read the like check out the some of the books that I put in the show notes. The one by Edwards will help kind of illuminate this further than we could in this podcast, which is already pretty long right now, but um, it's like, yeah. there's a lot more in there because a lot of these people are doing this, right? Like there are artists and and poets and thinkers and, you know, like political, political folks, intellectuals, et cetera, that are coming out of Harlem Renaissance, that are coming out of, you know, Europe, that are coming out of uh, Africa, that are coming out of Latin America, that are coming out of the Caribbean. And they're all... Coming to, as I said earlier, kind of these similar ways of thinking and influencing one another when they do get a chance to meet. Um, and really engaging back and forth. World War II is is, you know, the lead up to World War II is one part of that. But then after World War II, there's another part that becomes even more po- like deeply politicized um, in ways that perhaps some of the stuff, especially like the communist stuff that was going on prior to World War II, ends up getting. Snuffed out and crushed quite a bit following World War II, because of the you know anti-communist stuff and and the Cold War. But you start to see these stirrings coming up again, um, you know, right after the war. And I think that's that's the place that people like uh, Césaire and Senghor, of course, are operating in, right? And this is he's as I said the interviews that in '67, and in some ways '67 is following some really impactful stuff, but it's also preceding it because everyone, a lot of people who study movements and social stuff talk about 68 as being the big year, you know, because 68 is when you have all these uh, student movements in France and all this stuff going on across Europe, but Europe is kind of late to the party. (laughs) For those who study, you know, like Mm anti-colonial movements, you realize that, wait a second, like there's a whole lot of stuff going on in the early sixties in Africa and early sixties in in Latin America and stuff that really is where it's at. And Europe is still kind of, still kind of tying its shoelaces trying to recover from World War II. And so what, Singer and uh, you know. Césaire and and Fanon and others are asking us to do is to consider what's happening in the quote unquote third world, and obviously what Kelly is asking too, and earlier in the introduction. But these people are asking us to consider what's happening in the third world and how is that influencing the way that Europe is unfolding and changing, right? What it, how does that influence what's happening when these people are being forced to leave the, the colony? right, and to go home, and what's happening to their children, and what are they doing politically, right, so it it raises more questions about, you know, how how Europe in some ways, by being influenced by the third world, is freeing itself from all of these savageries of colonialism, of course, it's not permanent, Um, (laughs) it's not to say that they do a great job at it, but in many ways, they're being influenced by these um, thinkers in in their colonies to change the metropole, to change the home state, to change, you know, the home country, colonizing country as well. You see this in case after case after case. Like if you study anti-colonial movements uh, and the connection with anti-fascist movements in Europe, they're very closely tied um, and they're talking to one another, you know? So there's, there's a lot of interesting movement going on here. And as you said, I think the blackness in particular that he's talking about is part of, what catalyzes many, many of these things. Um, and it's not, as you said, it's not just about like, well, I have brown skin or I was like, you know, dark skin, but it's like <laughs> understanding the essence of rebellion, revolution and beauty in many ways in these, in one's African origins and how that can mean so much more than just uh, what the colonizers have placed on these people as to what it's supposed to mean.
1: Yeah. yeah I think uh, touching a bit back on the says critique of a communism or communists i think it's interesting or was interesting for me to find out that like he says uh, quote at the time i knew nothing absolutely nothing about africa like and this is talk in the context of it's on page 85 talking about the assimilation and french communists and french surrealists and stuff and like but even then like and like in, in discovering it, like in discovering Africa and what it meant and it's like, it's weird to me that, you know, that a black person could uh, grow up, become well educated, go to Europe, and that's where they discover Africa, like, you know, like, it, it makes sense in a strictly logical way, like, but from like, they just human perspective it's just like wait these people came from this place and they have no idea like know basically nothing about it but are also considered some of the most intelligent people of this community like how how did this happen what, and like well that's part of the it turns out that's part of the the game is like intellectually raising people up in, in with an absence of an, an understanding of where they came from and what was destroyed in order to make their lives quote better or whatever and like uh the quote that came to my mind also was just says uh, the questioner asks, You've tried to particularize communism. So, yes, very old tendency of mine. Even the communists would reproach me for speaking. Of the Negro problem. They called it my racism. And I was like, that sounds familiar. <laughs> You're the oh, real yes. racist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and they, it's because like, you want to talk the- about race. <laughs> <laughs> this is the case over and over and over and over, and like worldwide. I'm not even kidding. Like everywhere where there are Black people and there are Black people who've questioned the left on its ineptitude when it comes to issues that Black people face, they get hit with this. Uh, very reactionary response and it's just it's like clockwork you know
1: and just like I think he says, but I would answer Marx is all right but we need to complete Marx I felt that the emancipation of the Negro consisted of more than just a political emancipation like it is like I just love Marx is all right you know <laughs> like this is like because I can this is you know 67 so this is he's the, uh, more than almost two decades from when uh, it was published mm-hmm. and so like the you can kind of see the 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 shift over time of like (laughs) yeah okay like you know at first it was much more kind of uh i guess in i don't know like i don't want to say maybe it's gross but like just kind of attached or proximity to the ussr Mm -hmm. and like the the growth of uh, the marxist movement but it was like by this time, and after having probably had more experience with the Americas and understanding uh, what's going on in in North America specifically the United States regarding Black people, and this is 67, so this is after the bus boycotts, but before MLK is assassinated, so it's like, it's in this sort of space that's still transitory, and it's just like the the sensation across uh, multiples of these, of Scholars and activists and so on and so forth uh, that Marx was just inadequate or incomplete, and that it just needed to be finished, or you know, not finished per se, but like it needed to be uh, added to, to encapsulate or to capture these the issues around race that were, were missing. Partially, I would assume as a result of, you know, the specific material circumstances that Marx and Engels were in when they were trying to formulate this kind of idea, like they weren't in, they weren't surrounded by, you know, slavery and black, uh, you know, colonization in their day-to-day personal lives. And so like, I, it probably, like, that's probably a lot of where it comes from rather than like uh, a specific and, uh, and or malicious attempt to, to not address that issue which is kind of how it feels and how it's practiced by a lot of the people that say that they're following Marx or identify as Marxist generally.
0: Right yeah like he and I think mm, there's also just a constant need to defend oneself as well which he does towards the end of this interview Mm. um, about like no, we're actually Marxists. Like, it's not a joke yeah. for us. We are, like, you all are the jokers here, you know, because you're not understanding the complete view of what's happening. And your your understanding of Marxism and of communism writ large is incomplete too. It's not just about Marx himself, perhaps not being quite enough to get at the full picture, but he's saying, like, Cesar is saying that, like, you all not only do you not get marks because you're, you're operating like colonizers, but you also don't get the need to incorporate an understanding of blackness into marks that will then make your understanding of marks better. Right? Like that, it, it's like, yeah. he's saying that they're constitutive of one another. You can't, you can't separate, you know, the left reading of the world from what it means to be black and, and the, the experience of blackness under these conditions. And, He's saying that the, the fact that they don't get that makes them inept at their, at even at their Marxism. Right. It's kind of like, mm-hmm. you, you get what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's an if then, then that kind of situation. And he's saying, if you guys don't get blackness, you don't really get Marxism either. Um, mm-hmm. which is fascinating, I'm like, yeah, right, yes, like, <laughs> yes, you know, yeah, and I mean, it's a,
1: it's a credit to, to Marx's efforts, and it's like, first off, it was like, before that, like, right. it, it, it was, so it was like a huge and important piece on its own, but it's like, even within it, in its limitations, there's still a way and, and uh, a reason to read it as, like you said, as Blackness being an essential part of understanding Marxism, like, even even though it may lack that kind of literal, like the literal words in the manifesto and following works that articulates it at the way that the people coming after uh, did with the, whether it's WDB Du Bois, whether it's uh, Fannin or Cedric Robinson or many others.
0: Right, yeah, because like there, and, and, and you know, one could argue too that all of any sort of historical scientific, you know, like whenever you have advancements or changes in a field, you add to what's existing, right? You can't get from, you you don't start from zero is my point, right? Mm -hmm. You You take something that exists and you say, okay, that's interesting. I found this other new thing though that adds to that, right? Doesn't necessarily take away from it. Doesn't mean the argument is like garbage, but it means that it is evolving, right? It is changing to fit the times or changing to fit a new problem that's coming up or whatever. And I think he's just asking people to be more flexible in their sense of thought, but also to understand that like these two things are connected in ways that y'all don't get and not getting that is what's holding us back. And what's, what's preventing you from fully embracing and practicing Marxism and, and capital, like, like not capitalism, but communism in and of itself, right. Is, is being held back by your inability to be flexible and understand that you need to tweak certain things or not even tweak but just add to it just supplement it's like you're gonna drink coffee and you don't always have to drink it black Like you can add a little milk you can add a little sugar and it makes for a different coffee but it doesn't mean that it's not coffee anymore right it's still coffee Mm. but it's like a different it's a slightly different flavor i would argue improved flavor right (laughs) you know like (laughs) put a little something in it but but the reality is like this is this is what people like Césaire and his contemporaries, but then as you have said already, well into the present, are arguing. Um, and it's it doesn't take away from it. And that reluctance to recognize that it actually benefits and and further deepens market Marxism is is the product of racism. Like we're just let's just keep it real. Like <laughs> yeah. it's obvious. And this is what he's saying too. He's saying, like, you all can't get past yourselves. You're tripping over your own feet because you don't want to recognize what our experience and our struggle and our way of thinking about struggle can contribute to the larger struggle in the human condition, you know, like, yeah. And I, you know, I've, I've seen so many articulations of this Barbara Ransby, who's an amazing, um, you know, thinker and historian has talked about this tons of times. I've seen her say it literally in a, in a talk, like she gave a talk at a conference once and she said it, um, I've said it, friends of mine have said it and people that are way beyond, you know, like, like we're talking again, he's writing this in the sixties are saying it. And I think you mentioned this earlier, but this idea of like constantly having to reinvent the wheel is so tiring. And we're having to reinvent the wheel for people who don't want to embrace any sort of change, who don't want to advance, like just i should argue like just like republicans like when there are republicans who are poor right because a lot of republicans are rich but the Mm. republicans who are poor who vote against their interests and then you say to them you're like you're holding your like you're the reason you're being held back is because of your embrace of top-down ideas about race class and gender that you can't get past right you're suffering Mm -hmm. because you're buying the bullshit." from the people in charge and accepting that as as truth and then voting accordingly. Instead of saying, hey, uh, maybe I should unify and unionize with these immigrants, or maybe I should like have a connection with these black neighbors of mine, or maybe I should allow women to have rights and then we'll have a better society. And then we all can like get healthcare and benefit, you know what I mean? like that? Because that's one thing that always holds them back from like voting for people who are in favor of universal healthcare and things like that. If we can do that, then we're set. We're all set. But instead, they're, they're voting in the interest of wealthy people, predominantly wealthy white people who have a say over their lives without their realizing it. And I think that like Cesare is saying to communists, more or less the same thing. You know, you guys are shooting yourselves in the foot because you can't, can't get with the program and it's wasting everybody's time, but most of all your own. You know, like we would be, we would be in better shape as a world if we, if y'all could just get past your shit and be real communists and recognize that this colonizer mindset is not going to work if you're trying to overthrow the people in in real power.
1: I can just the, how frustrated the frustration must have just been palpable. Like <laughs> it just, I can just like you're talking with communists. This is as close as you're getting to somebody politically aligned with you. In the Western world, that you can find uh, outside of, you know, other African diasporic communities, basically, and they are basically presenting you with the same fundamental and root problems that you, you you're trying to address under colonialism. So, it's like, mm-hmm. how are my 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 strongest allies going to be advocates of the one of the most fundamental principles that we're trying to upset? Like yeah. that just we, that can't function, and it's like that must just be like frustrating but like at the time i think it was not quite as disheartening just because there was still so much movement happening within african diaspora communities mm-hmm. that the it was like well despite their best efforts we, we're still going to do that and it's like uh 67 is still before we know how the u.s is going to suppress both uh, movements within the united states and then uh throughout the world through the cold war so-called cold war with which were really just a, a combination of several hot wars Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, fought uh, like by yeah like it was horrible for the people of the that lived in the places uh, even though it was supposedly being fought for their on their behalf Mm -hmm. (laughs) and vietnam is still still to this day having birth defects and several other issues related to the consequences of the horrific crimes that the united states perpetrated in vietnam what ended up happening at the end or after this interview took place was like I said, the systemic effort to squash any of these types of movements around the world by led chiefly by the United States. And so where where we're at now is in many ways like rebuilding things that were done back then that like these processes were built up and they reached a point that was so, so threatening to the status quo, to colonialism, to capitalism that it was a disaster, it was like, uh, I'm trying to think of like just massively suppressed in such a way and it was effective enough to set basically the clock back 50 years or more depending on where you start the counting from or whatever. Like mm. that essentially in many ways, we're trying to rebuild things that, that had reached places that were beyond where they are now back then and the reason for that isn't just because, oh, you know, communism doesn't work or, you know, socialism is a silly idea for utopian children or whatever. Like, it's because there was a systemic effort to, to, to kill it and mm-hmm. kill the people that were doing it and, like, in the literal sense, but then also in the, the spiritual and metaphorical sense, like to dishearten them, to disrupt them, to do anything it took to undermine this, uh, this call for liberation.
0: And then I guess, you know, closing there, um, it's, it's frustrating, right? Because we're back there, (laughs) we're constantly coming back there and it just feels like we're going in a circle instead of a line. Um, and sometimes I think even though we do this, you know, every, every month or so it's exhausting because we recognize, okay, we're reading this stuff and we're thinking and saying the same things more or less that people were saying 50 years ago, 60 years ago, maybe more. Um, and and the, <laughs> It's like, how does the U S or how do these, how do these countries that have power in the West like that still win every time they're doing, they're using the same playbook over and over and people keep falling for it. And I think that's what is also frustrating because you're like, Why would people like in order to combat this imaginary boogeyman, you know, they're 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 messing up their own lives and it it just hurts and you don't it's very difficult to combat because when you try to tell people, you know, facts, when you try to expose people to what's actually happening or what the US did or whatever, they have a they have a they have myriad excuses, you know, like a bucket full of excuses. Um, to justify what happened. Um, I mean, I saw just the other day, actually, a discussion of Vietnam that was uh, sympathetic to the US. (laughs) And I was like, what? Like, what are you talking about? And this is like from a mainstream, uh, you know, YouTube personality, whatever, who kind of is, I mean, he's sort of a purported, purported centrist, but still he has massive influence and you know, I thought that the idea about Vietnam not being okay was settled, right? It's like, just when I think this stuff is settled, they revive it and and act like it happened just the other day. And we don't have any information about it. We don't know, as you said, like the birth defects and stuff, we just don't know any of that. It's just all up in the air. And you can just gaslight us and tell us that everything was fine and what the US did was justified. And it's just not, right? Um, but I'm personally tired of being on the merry-go-round. And I wish that That other folks would uh, get tired as well, but get tired in a way that not that they're giving up, but tired in the way, bring it all the way back. Like the lady on the front of the book, the girl on the front Mm. of the book, who's like, she looks tired, but she's also annoyed and she's also frustrated. And it's not the kind of frustrated where she's going to necessarily give up, but it's like, you feel like there's something something some sort of unrest there you're waiting on what she's going to do next and I feel like we need to, we need to get to the part where something's being done um I don't know what that's going to look like how it's going to materialize in a moment like this but there are there eventually is something done but I think we're in a process now where we're just we're taught to just wait on it instead of acting ourselves we're going to wait let somebody let's about like universal bystander effect you know like you know, let somebody else do it but when are we gonna do it? when are we gonna step up and change things? And I think that there's a uh, I don't know I mean a, a, I know people are frustrated, but it seems like the ones who keep doing stuff are the people who are channeling their energies into the right and right wing uh, activity, which is really scary actually and that's like what we need less of, not more of you know the, the people who are doing like just this past weekend they had an anti-war rally in DC and it was read it was it was led by, uh fascist you know and you're like Mm. wait what um so something needs to give we need to have and and i also see also with like the ohio situation the explosion from the train derailment the right swooped in real fast to start agitating in terms of the anger and the anger is justified but the left kind of sat on its hands at least the left as we call it in the us right the democratic party but i'm saying even even like socialists and communists were talking about it on twitter making people aware, but beyond that, what's going on on the ground? What are they, what are people doing on the ground? Um,
1: I just want to I, quickly I touch know. on that. Yeah. that the, what that also does, the quick reaction from the fascists in the right to something like the Ohio trading derailment is, it allows Democrats to then undermine any criticism or critique Mm -hmm. of of their response as just, Oh, you're just, you're just another Republican. It's like, no, I'm a communist. I'm I'm coming at this from a completely different, like I'm not doing this just to score political points because I don't like Pete Buttigieg or whatever. (laughs) It's because it fits into a much larger framework and narrative and understanding of the world and worldview that like is radically different from the right-wing person that you're trying to attribute, my criticism to like as being uh mimicking like that's not what's happening and it's incredibly frustrating and it's right. something obviously sincere dealt with in his time and it's like and we're still dealing with and like it is incredibly frustrating sorry I, sorry to interrupt but i had to
0: no no it's fine <laughs> and it's accurate i mean then the thing is is like the fresh together the frustrating part about this is that when the right takes over it ends up giving the democrats you know like plausible deniability right because they're like well see this is why we don't want to touch it because it's a right wing thing or we don't, it's, it's not our bag. It's like, a, it, it's, it's gone too far now. It's a fascist concern. um, And, and it also, I mean, what are they going to say, right? Like Biden just uh, gave the okay to letting railroad companies basically trample all over their workers and workers who were demanding sick leave and adequate pay and sick pay in a time that we're still undergoing an ongoing pandemic. That Biden is not doing anything to fix. <laughs> so, like, and, and actually, and we don't continues... know a
1: politician that cares more about trains. So, <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. And it's like he's continuing to take away the things that we need to survive this. And yet, and then like jeopardizing the rights of workers who need time off work to heal and get better if they're sick. And that way they don't get other workers sick and they don't have accidents on the job because of you know, heart attacks or strokes or cognitive decline that they're dealing with from long COVID, like who knows, you know, it's just, it's really, it's so frustrating. And then they can't say, like the Democrats can't say anything if the man that they helped put in office and that they claim party status alongside is basically ignoring it and then saying everything's fine about the train, about the shootings, about the COVID stuff. It's like, everything's fine. Just look the other way, guys. You know, here's a hotel discount. Like literally he, he tweeted last night about uh, <laughs> hotel fees being too high. And it's like, dude, like, what are you talking about? Like, can you please, can you focus? You know, it's just, it, it's like, it's I unreal.
1: I <laughs> the union too when you mentioned that. And I was just like, who is, that is for someone. Right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's like weird that it would be, the ironic part is that it's like encouraging an activity that helps with COVID spread um and that like railroad work railroad workers wouldn't even be able to take a vacation like they can't take a vacation even if they want to go to a hotel to go to a resort whatever they don't have rights they can't they don't have vacation days they don't have stick days like what are you talking about you know it's just like it's like the most out of touch thing possible it's a very i just feel like the whole democratic party right now is in its full-on you know let them eat cake moment and the the right the republicans are just like full-on you know, like we're Nazi bands and marching down the streets at this point. Like, I just, I I don't know what is happening. But my point is that the long story short here is that it's sad that we're reliving these things over and over. And I'm personally tired of it. And something needs to be done. I'm tired of talking about it. I'm tired of like tweeting about it. You know, we need to have change now because at the rate we're going, it's not getting better. It's just things are getting worse and worse. And I, I don't know what's going to be left of the world, let alone the United States, if things continue down this path uh, where we're just funding a bunch of wars and we're letting a lot of young people and old people too die. And we're letting, you know, all these horrible climate change related incidents happen that are going to be lifelong, they're going to create lifelong damage and illness and harm to the people in that area and potentially death. And then you were just doing nothing about it. It's like, okay, like, it's, it's like they, they know they can keep doing these things to us. You know, like, like mm. the wealthy have looked down and said, all right, we're going to keep this going. As long as we trick them into just buying a bunch of stuff, they won't protest, they won't do anything. They're not going to really change anything. They're just going to keep buying things. It's fine. Like, as long as we give them Amazon, they don't need healthcare. And as long as they have Amazon or whatever, Walmart, you know, they don't need uh, any other basic needs met. Just keep buying stuff, guys. Keep it up. Go out to eat. Get your Amazon packages delivered, and don't protest. <laughs> it just feels <laughs> like
1: they like they see themselves as like, and forgive me if this analogy is based off of outdated, uh, you know, information. But the like that they're like the last lemming in a line walking towards a cliff and that they can keep, you know, telling everybody keep moving, keep moving as they're walking Mm -hmm. off the cliff. And that as long as they just stop it before they get to the cliff edge, they'll be fine. And it's like, then there's the, you know, the petty bouge, uh, Classes or whatever, and people that like are essentially not the last person in line, but they're towards the back of the line, and they're they're hoping that the line stops moving before they go off. While the people in back know that even they are eventually going to be pushed off the cliff too, and mm-hmm. it's just like as long as we're willing to just stay in line and not get out of line and look backwards, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> we're like this is where we're going, and it's like, and I guess on on the other hand the kind of optimism was something that helps me maintain my optimism is the kind of at least my i'm sure sorely lacking understanding (laughs) of the history of essentially the death of the divine right of kings the idea that kings were essentially ordained by god and this is like obviously in europe has this kind of specific uh, meaning but like was something that existed throughout various cultures, the the deification of leaders and so on and so forth. But specifically in Europe, you have this uh, concept, uh, the divine right of Kings, where you're basically no earthly authority or group can hold this person accountable because they're only basically only answerable to God. And like, that was just how it was. And Mm -hmm. that's just, if you talk to a rant, you go talk to the butcher, you know, and you ask them, you know, like, that's what they'll know, more or less. But, like, everybody also relates to that in their own way. Like, not everybody that accepted that that was the way it is also literally believed it religiously. Like, they, like, but there were plenty of people that also did do that. Like, but there's a wide variety of types of interpretations of what that means. And it's like, I feel like that's somewhere where, somewhat where we're at now with kind of this colonial like colonialism cl- capitalism kind of aspect in that like where it seemed like it was an overnight thing that suddenly there just wasn't the divine right of kings anymore particularly in england after the they had a revolution and furthermore after the other revolutions that followed between the late 1660 or 1680s 1680s and early 1700s or mm-hmm. throughout this and so like it's this i did it again <laughs> i get too wrapped up in the in explaining the details that then I well maybe train. like
0: just the idea that like the change isn't inevitable but it also it doesn't happen overnight but it happens oh
1: yeah right? the, just to like, say that like the transition towards capitalism is or towards capital the transition away from capitalism towards socialism is something that's been transpiring and so like we are at a moment i'm hoping where it may feel like suddenly everybody just realizes hey we can't keep doing this capitalism thing because it doesn't make any mm-hmm. sense just like we can't keep making the our leader of our country the per the son of the person who was before because god said so like because that just one doesn't work and two probably isn't accurate right. <laughs> 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 like, yeah so like it's like whether it's that it's not working or that it's just not an accurate uh interpretation of reality i think uh and whether people believe it religiously that capitalism actually is the the savior of humanity or the best that it can possibly do or they just kind of well that's how it is and that's the explanation mm-hmm. that people give so i don't have the time or i can't be bothered to to disrupt that or move outside of that is like that also brings with it all sorts of consequences under capitalism where like i become less successful quote or it's quote successful uh, as a result of spending less time dedicated towards accumulating capital and more times towards uh, accumulating liberation for uh, people.
0: <laughs> yes, um, we'll see how that works out. I'm praying that that moment comes. If we're speaking about religion, that's the only time you're gonna see me praying. One, that we find a better <laughs> vaccine. <laughs> like I have two prayers right now. One, that we find a better vaccine and two, that we end capitalism as we know it and we get something better in its place because uh... i mean it's just true we can't keep doing this like <laughs> no, we'll we destroy us. like it's and going to it has destroying and us is. like every yeah, day and it is
1: like yeah countless people are suffering with the consequences of our inaction or our inability to take more radical and more uh, revolutionary and more immediate action and
0: mm-hmm. it's every
1: day is more people that we're throwing onto a bonfire of humanity that we're just like destroying and it's like it's horrific and i think part of why it's easier like why it can be Uh, more appealing to not kind of reconcile or engage with that is because it is so horrific and Mm -hmm. the idea that like in our ignorance we've been complicit and bear some if any responsibility for that is is a burden that without uh, a something like a revolutionary socialism to escape from it can be overwhelming like it's just like oh my god i'm just this horrific person that i didn't think i was and now i have no idea what i can do about it and it's like well if you recognize it and uh, move through like a revolutionary socialist framework to move beyond it there is hope but if you leave yourself within the confines of the u.s political spectrum democrats and republicans maybe a little social democracy maybe even a little bit of democratic socialism It's like, you're not going to get there. And that's, that's terrifying.
0: No, we're not going to get there. Not like that. Uh, And I know Cesare certainly would agree with you on that one. Uh, So with that said, let's close it up for today. We're going to actually talk about discourse on colonialism in a separate podcast. So the next episode is going to be about that. It'll be part two. Um, We'll be discussing the meat of the text. Uh, And to think this, we talked for a really long time just about the intro and the, interview at the end so I can't wait to get into Scissor's actual words uh, because he has a lot to say and is very passionate about it um and like I said I think folks will really enjoy just reading it but I hope you all stick around for the discussion as well um so with that said thank you so much Richard it was great talking to you thank you all for listening uh did you have any closing words you wanted to leave us with Richard?
1: uh just uh thank you and uh, implore people as, as exhausted or as like as long as we went we didn't cover everything in either so no I, <laughs> I encourage people to also uh if anything was interesting at least look for it and then see if you can continue to read and and just ingest that information yourself firsthand and i just hope that our kind of contextualization and kind of putting some sort of uh like uh Kind of ground basis for what we're talking about in the text is helpful for people uh in either digesting the text or if nothing else at least digest like understanding how it is that uh, i and you uh, are interacting and engaging with this text and I don't and I don't think either of us are going to be attempting to definitively say this is how it is or this is what it this is always with a kind of understanding that this is our interpretations of what we're interacting with and so that like, it's always uh, important for people to interact and engage with the text themselves if and when they can find the time. And so I just also want to encourage that.
0: Yes, 100% agree. And just as a reminder. Um, the text itself is available online, but I also put it on our Patreon page, which is free to the general public. Um, so you can go to patreon.com slash and read along there. So anyway, thanks so much. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. And thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. Just make sure, as I said before, that you check us out on Patreon. And that's patreon.com slash left POC. You can find the PDFs or links to all of the things that we discuss in our reading revolution episodes, as well as additional texts and resources related to the podcast and the subjects that we discuss within it. Um, also be sure to check us out on social media again, just by searching for left POC. We're expanding some of that stuff with time. Um, but just because of the nature of my being super busy and being a parent and doing so much, um, in addition to Left POC, um, it's a little bit hard to manage all of that, but we will be um, on some more social media sites soon. But you can definitely find us at Patreon, um, at Twitter, where we're very active, and then on Facebook as well. Also, I uh, just wanted to remind folks that the pandemic is still raging. Uh, there are hundreds of people dying a day from COVID-19. And of course, there are preventative, preventative ways to protect yourself. Um... Definitely make sure that you are vaccinated if you are not already. Uh, Get your booster if you haven't done that yet. And most importantly, make sure that you mask when you're indoors, beyond your household, um, and outdoors if you're in a crowd or in close proximity to others. And when I say mask, definitely try to your best to use a respirator mask. So something like a KN-94, a KN-95, or an N-95. If you cannot afford any of these masks or if you need help finding masks from a reputable source that's not going to break the bank, please get in touch with me. Um, you can message me on the Left POC Twitter page, which is, you know, I run it, so I'm, I'm there. I check the messages. Um, again, that's at Left POC. Or you can message me on my personal Twitter page, um, and that's at... Muse Wendy, M-U-S-E-W-E-N-D-I. In 2022, I mailed out like 12,800 masks to people in need. uh, And I have a lot of experience in terms of getting uh, respirator masks at a decent price, but again, from places that are authorized sellers for these types of masks. So please, please, please do not hesitate to contact me. Uh, I know what I'm talking about and I can help you um, if, if you need these masks and I can certainly try to put you in touch with people who are still giving away masks and doing things in the community. So again, don't hesitate to contact me. Stay safe out there. Um, take care of each other, be supportive of one another and don't overlook what's going on all around you. Be aware and do what you can to help within your means. Anyway, with that said, be safe, have a good one. And thanks so much for listening.